You can write a bird or a tree or a ladder. Um, uh, and I was a baby game designer, so I didn't know there was like a concept of games that couldn't ship. Right, <laughs> right? yeah. Like, like this is such a silly <laughs> idea. And it's also like, if someone pitched it now, it'd be like, no, absolutely yeah. not. Hi, everybody. This is Soren Johnson, and you are listening to Designer Notes, a podcast about why we make games. Today, we are talking to veteran game designer Liz England, best known for her work on Scribblenauts, Sunset Overdrive, and Watch Dogs Legion. This episode was recorded on September 17th, 2022, and was engineered by Michael Hermes. So where I usually like to start is, what's the first video game that you remember? Oh, that's a oh, that's a good one. Um, it was a Alice in Wonderland text adventure. Oh. Um, was this? I think I played one. Was this the one that I've went no around? Okay, you, you have, have no earliest clue? memory. Uh, good, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, like I'm definitely one of those like as a as a precocious kid who loved to read. I don't remember learning how to read, right. but I do remember being on the computer and trying to play an Alice in Wonderland text adventure, and my mom occasionally coming over to tell me like, "Here's how you type that thing." Right. Right. Um, and I remember it just being really hard. That I got as far as drinking the drink me potion, but I could not figure out how to like climb inside the door. Right. That okay. I think you had to go in through like the lock of the door. Like it just it's Alice in Wonderland, right? And it's sure. like the first scene or yep. something like that after you're in Wonderland. And yeah. You, you get small and stuff like that. That's yeah. the first memory I have of playing a game. Okay. Yeah. Because I remember there's a really there's a really good Alice Adventure Land adventure game from like the early nineties. I remember yeah. playing on my Amiga. Yeah. Um I yeah. If that would have been the same one. Um, it would have been on PC. Right. Yeah. So I was born in eighty five. So like my earliest memories were around five or six years yep. old. So, so that would be 90, 91. Yep. Yeah. So it might have been the same one. Yeah. Um, I never bothered looking up. Maybe I should, but it's like this, like the one. The weird, like, the, memory of, yeah. 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 Um, cool. So were you were you intrigued by the, the games, like, at that point? Or? So, okay. So, like, for me, I grew up and, like, games were just everywhere in our household. Okay. Right? Like, we had... Like, my mom would read books and she'd play video games on, on the computer, right? Okay. Uh, and we would get consoles, right? So, like, really? for us, right. it was, like, you just live and breathe and you play video games and that is just, like, what you do at home, right? right? Um, and so we had some consoles growing up, like the, ten, like the NES and stuff like that. Um, but I think the sort of, like, the bread and butter games were computer games, specifically point-click adventure games right. um, and computer RPGs. Okay, um, like and Sierra games or like Lucas Lucas uh, Arts games. Both, all both. of them, every single like like. At one point, I went through and I tried to make a list of like early adventure games, and I'm like, of all the ones that came out, I think we had like half of them at our house, wow. right? Like, okay. like I did not realize what was normal or not normal in terms of like access to like yeah. games content. Yep, um, it was just like everywhere. So and like so there were a lot of times. That's how you ended up playing Alice Adventure, Alice in Wonderland. That's how, yeah, because right. it was just around. Because clearly, like probably my parents were playing it, right? Yeah. Um, there were a lot of times when I was real little. I remember coming home and like, my mom would make dinner, so she put me on the computer because she was stuck on a puzzle, right? In oh, like a okay. LucasArts or a Sierra. Mostly like early on, it was like a lot of Sierra games. Um, 
Uh, so we played like all the King's Quest games, all the Space Quest games, all the Leisure Suit Larry games wow. as a small child. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's very funny talking to my brother about this, right? Because like uh, we grew up with no like media restrictions. Okay. Right? Sure. So it's like I was a small child and I would just read my mom's Stephen King books off the shelf. And she's like, yeah, sure, go ahead. I got nightmares. But it was fine, right? Um, and maybe that's not how everyone would raise their kids, but like it worked out fine for us. Um, but it did mean that like I had access to a lot of media that like that was like maybe adult media, like or just like not media that was meant for kids and it wasn't necessarily dumbed down for kids and it wasn't edutainment media. It was just like adult media, computer RPGs and and action adventure. Um, that's not so much action adventure games, but like point and click adventure games. Just like if they were in our household, that was fair game for me or my brother to play. Yeah. How you do know? you think that affected you growing up? Um, like as a designer, like more as like a person, I guess. Well, so I've thought about this a lot, right? Cause like I, I have a few loves in my life and I can like, in terms of like things that I just like, like the handful of things that like I really love in terms of like, media are still the things that I grew up with, right? So I still love point-of-click adventure games. Um, I still love computer games in general and RPGs and, like, games with a lot of narrative focus clearly came out of, like, those early years of, like, games that had a lot of narrative focus and just, like, the types of books that were on the shelves and the types of movies that we watched, like, they're still the things that I love now. Right. Um, And so, like, I can draw the direct connection to... Like, the stuff that I grew up with that was just around the home, right? Right. Yeah. What, um, th- there's, there's, it's kind of a little bit of an odd thing with event, the whole adventure game genre mm-hmm. in that you kind of have, like, two things that are stapled together. You know, yeah. you have the narrative and then you have yeah. the puzzles. And it's, there's not necessarily a reason yeah. why they're connected. Yeah. It's just kind of like the way, the weird way the genre came yeah. forward. Like, yeah. what, um did you prefer one or the other or like, did you have it even, did you think about this? Like... Um, at the time, not really. Right. Like, like we also did things like buy the manual that was like all the answers and the hints. Right. Right. And it's yeah. like, Oh, I'm stumped. And my mom's stumped. And my brother's stumped. It's like, I'm going to look it up. Right. Um, and so there was that, I think for me, a lot of it had to do with the, the journey and mm-hmm. the journey is both the narrative journey and also the like, highs and lows of being stuck on puzzles. Right. Um, there's like a very, a very like, like distinct thing. I remember like with a lot of Sierra games, there's like a score counter, which is like very weird now. Yeah. Like if I think about like, oh, I'm, my score is going to go up by one point right. because I clicked on this plant in this scene and I got like an extra point for like that, like yeah. interaction that was unnecessary. Right. Yeah. I mean, like um, I've been trying to think of like Firewatch with a score. Right. It's like, so weird, right? <laughs> like so why weird. would you do that? I mean, I guess the games have achievements, which is sort of that in a weird way. I but guess, like, but I don't but care about is... achievements these yeah, days. Yeah. But at the time I was like, I cared about my score. It was yeah. also our way of tracking like, we had a whole, maybe this is where my love of naming conventions come from. Because when we saved a Sierra game, right, you have save files. Yeah. And you need to type in text to describe what you saved. Yeah. And so we, as a family, had rules about how you write a save file. You start with the score number, and then you describe it. Because your score would always increment. It Go never dick decrement. Right. So you yeah. knew what was essentially your checkpoints. And obviously it was manual saving. So these were like our checkpoint stuff. It's funny. I hadn't actually thought of that. But the like the scoring is like... From from like 
from now, I'm like, all right, that is a relic of like arcade games, right? Yeah. Like things that games should have are things like scores, but doesn't really make any sense now. In hindsight, it's sort of like a a like vestigial element of these games that um, was unnecessary. And it's just sort of interesting to think about like what was inherited and like 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 I try to be very in, I try to be very intentional about design of like yep. not just inheriting things because you're familiar with it or you're used to it. And I'm always curious, like things like a score in a point and click adventure game, like what is the purpose that that serves? There's some perp there's some bits and pieces right. to it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of unintentional design yeah. back then or just things yeah. that things that happened because yeah, like now if you think of it, essentially puzzles and narrative has, have split apart. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you want to play a puzzle game. Now you play a puzzle game. Mm -hmm. You want to play a narrative game. Now you play a narrative game. Yeah. And you sometimes have different ways to explore mechanically explore a narrative that you didn't have then. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, huh. Did you, um, so you're probably aware now, right? That like Sierra and LucasArts had very different philosophies yes, yeah. behind how they yeah. approach games, right? Like yeah. you can't fail, or at least yeah. you're not supposed to yeah. fail a LucasArts game. Where Sierra kind of like here's a million failures and right. it's funny, haha. -ha. Yeah, they like it. Like they enjoyed that process, I guess. Yeah. And and in general, I think that like I would I take issue. I don't think I would probably ever want to play a Sierra game again at this point, right? Oh, like I have. Just, okay. I'm like fair, even, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I went through and and was playing like the first point and click adventure games. Like I played um, Wizard and Princess. Okay. Wizard and the Wizard and the Princess, or Wizard and Princess, which was their. So actually, technically, Mystery House was the first Sierra game. Right, sure. Um, yeah. And then Wizard and Princess. And, like, it's clear to me, like, and I had read this before, but, like, actually experiencing those first couple of games, it was very clear to me that the design aesthetic was designer versus player. Player, right. can you beat the, the designer, designer, right? Yeah. Um, uh, Did you ever play, kind of, oh, gosh, I don't remember the name, but it's Time Something. I played all of them. Okay. Describe it to me. It was a time travel game that, you know, Roberta Williams designed probably around yeah. 83 or 84. And it was like, oh. she was like, you know, she was getting more and more ambitious. And this was a game she played like across four different locations and like five different time zones or whatever. And um, the, the, the rub with this game was in order to progress the game, you had to be in the right location at the right time. And if you miss that, you just, you know, you couldn't oh, I'm continue to think the game. Of which one that might be. You sure that wasn't one of the Space Quest games? Because there was, well, there was Lost in Time, but that was a much later on yeah. Space Quest one. I don't know which one that is. Yeah, yeah. But um, it, it, anyway, yeah. The, point, yes. the point I'm trying to get yeah. at is like, it was, it was just, it was like okay to be like, the, there's no way the player is going to just figure out the stuff on their own. They're going to have to. They're going to have to do trial and yeah. error repeatedly. Yeah. It's not going to necessarily make sense. So, what I like, so like what you just described, but I've also thought of this before, is like, now think about that and like, oh, you have to be at the right place at the right time in the right order in order to beat this game. Right. And there's trial and error, and then compare it to something like Outer Wilds which is the modern version of that, you have to be in the right place at the right time, complete things in the right order right. in a 20-minute span. But the game is built around yes. the joy of discovering what that path is as opposed to like hitting yourself against the wall to figure out what that right. path is, right? Like you can draw a direct connection in terms of like what those were trying to do, but the way in which they treat the player and like the design aesthetics and also like obviously the way design has evolved in general has like... Like you're always building on top of what already exists, as opposed to there not being much there to build on top of. Um, yeah, um, 
Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, because yeah, they it the the fantasy of those two games is basically like the same thing. Yeah. Right. Like you got to pull off the perfect run. Yeah. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. But they fully internalize this, you know, mm-hmm. with with outer outer wilds. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, which you know makes it makes it work. Yeah. Right. So. Yeah. 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 Cool. Um, you, I think you said the other thing you play a lot of is RPGs. Is that right? Yeah. Um, I think so. Point click adventure games were like the bulk yeah. of okay. of the childhood, right? Um, and then I played some. I think some of the computer RPGs were too complex for me. Like I think like one of my early memories was one of the Ultimate games. But I didn't play it because it was a little complex. There was too much going on. But what I would do was I would organize my mom's inventory. Right. And like you could place, I don't remember which ultimate it was. Maybe it was five or six. Maybe it was later than that. I don't know. Um, but like you play stuff out in the world, and like so, I was like, I remember, I remember organizing all her gems and stuff yeah. like that, and just like the joy of just like orga- organizing stuff, organizing right. an inventory for someone else. I'm like, nowadays, I'm like, yes, that sounds like a great use of a small <laughs> child. <laughs> was she drafting you, you know? to do this for? Oh her? yeah, absolutely. Okay. Wow. <laughs> and I was, uh, a, you know, um, digital surf, but like, but... yeah, like. Like, when we start going into more computer RPGs, like, my favorite game of all time, and admittedly, this is heavily tinged by nostalgia, right? You can't you can't have favorite games without nostalgia, is Might and Magic 4 and 5 World of Zine, which is, okay. yeah. uh, you know, a, uh, uh, oh, God, what do we call them? Like, a, a dungeon crawler, but, right, but, like, you move forward at a tile. Is it a you blobber, essentially? Is it what? A blobber. Like that's, a blobber. A ter- that's like Dungeon Master, right, where you're on a tile, and there's, like, four yes. of you on a tile, and you go forward, and you go sideways. Yes. Yeah, and right. yeah, it's just like that. Um, but it does some things that are really different and I haven't found in other games, and that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist in other games in that genre. Right. Um, but uh, for me, it is a open world, it's an open world game, yeah. right? Like, you're that's exploring, what I remember about those you're exploring different games. cities. Yeah. It is absolutely full of Easter eggs. Um, there's like your general dungeon crawling and there's traps and like, you know, use the use the jump spell to jump over this trap and there's like things like that and puzzles, but like it also had things like an entire dungeon that was just a crossword puzzle, right? And like you have to actually type in, like you, you, you meet a skull at the end of each of the hallways and it gives you a hint and you have to type in what the answer is and it's a literal crossword puzzle. Right, and so they did a lot of weird wow. stuff like that. Okay. Um, and there was just like the we, yeah. So there would be a place to type in the word for each yes. one of the like over and yeah, across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were a bunch of across. puzzles, right? Yeah. And like they were kind of like silly and whimsical, right? Like I remember there was like one that was like the Tower of Vowelless Knights, which is, I mean that might not be entirely accurate when someone Google's it. It was something roughly like that, right? And um. There were all these like little skulls that when you clicked on, like they might give you a hint or they might be asking you a riddle and you have to answer it. And in this case, it was like they would they would give you like a proverb that was missing all the vowels. And the answer was to type out all the vowels, yeah, right? And they're okay. like pretty um, some of these are pretty simple puzzles, but like when you're like eight or nine, I'm like, oh, this is like the perfect level of difficulty, right? For me. Um, and there was just something sort of like magical about how much you could discover in that game. But it was also very systemic, right? Like you, there was a banking system. You put your money in the bank and you earn interest. Um, and like you could own real estate in the yeah. game, right? It was like one of my favorite things was was getting a permit and getting a castle and then having to clear out the 
the monsters at each level. And then when you cleared out the monsters, you got your own bank, yep. right? So you had your own hub. Um, in a lot of ways, like I think about that game and I think about like the ways like a lot of open world RPGs remind me of that. And I don't know that that, I don't want to make any claims that that was like the first one to do. It was like the one that I came across, right? right? That did a lot of that sort of stuff that was very new to me. Um, and yeah. It all, yeah, it just had a lot of like really interesting things because it was like, Two different games, Clouds of Zine and Dark Side of Zine. They were like connected and somehow, they were right? linked. Yeah. yeah. You could teleport between them and they were like, it's like a flat earth thing and one was on the opposite oh. side. So okay. they were like, literally, you're just like tunneling on and teleporting onto the other side of the world. And there was like a whole third ending. I, I go, I, I play, replayed this like just a few years ago and I'm like, yeah, it's a little bit simplistic and a bit old, but it kind of still holds up with like my nostalgia, right? right. Like, like that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah, I could talk forever about that game. I'm not going to. <laughs> but like, like, we played a lot of computer RPGs. Um, to go into design a little bit, like, I think the first game where I ever did any kind of modding was Heroes of Might Magic. Okay. Um, I was actually just about to ask, ask about that game. Yeah. I was curious if you uh, the made that transition. The strategy guy asked yeah. me about the strategy game. Right. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, we played Heroes of Might and Magic a whole ton. Um, and uh, we loved, like, as a family, we loved it, right? Like, we would all, like... Mm -hmm. like argue over who had computer time, right? And it was yeah. like the parents win, but you know. Um, and so we played a lot of Heroes of Might and Magic, but I was not very good at strategy games. Right. Um, it was when Heroes 2 came out and the level editor for Heroes 2, like there was a level editor for Heroes 1 as well, but I think the number of tools you had Right. Like the kinds of verbs, there was only like four classes, I think. There was like a limited number of monsters and Heroes 2 expanded that, right? So there's a lot more content to play with. Um, the map sizes were much larger. Um, so I did a lot of like playing around in Heroes 2 because it was like, all right, I'm bad at strategy games. Still bad. That's, that's never changed. <laughs> never going to change, right? But like what I would do would play against an AI on easy Mm -hmm. But what I wanted to do was, like, conquer the entire world. Like, right. mine every resource, collect everything, have, like, so many monsters in my inventory, so many artifacts, all the things that you could collect. And so I would go into the editor and I'd put down nine, 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 nine black dragons in front of one enemy castle. Right. Right? The hardest enemy and 90,000 of them. Yeah. So that they would never be able to escape. And I'd only be able to win once I could beat them. Right. Right. So I would start modding things that way. And then I started like, like building stuff from scratch. Although I don't think anything I made was any good. It was just like playing with it, you know, like a tool set or like, um, I think in a lot of ways, while I knew what the mechanics were of the game, when I was building stuff, it was like aesthetics. I'm creating this like cute little environment that I could also play around in. That didn't mean it played well, right? Sure, yeah. right. Yeah, I mean, you were nine or ten or something like know. that. I don't know. Probably, yeah, maybe. Yeah, Heroes yeah. two, so, um, probably ten or eleven right. when I was doing a bunch of Heroes two, two playing around with stuff. I don't yeah. remember what year it came out, but that sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, it was probably the the joy of you know you had a box product and now you were like able to mess around with yes. it, right? Yeah. Um, had you did you think in at all in terms of like people make games like <laughs> this is something that I could do? No, <laughs> it's. No, I didn't, right? Like, um, it wasn't until actually, like, like at some point, I think when I was in high school, I thought about it, but I really only thought, like, like 
my understand I didn't know game design was a thing, so I was like programmers, but even that was like pretty far away from like my my understanding of how game products worked. Um, I think I identified like like I would play a game like so at the time I was playing like a lot of Final Fantasy like Final Fantasy eight and uh -huh. nine and like that was coming out when I was in high school and I play that and I watched the cinematics that are so pretty and I was like oh I want to make that right so I thought I was gonna be like maybe I was interested more in the art, art. aspects right. and I was like there's no way I could do art like that so clearly there's no room for me in that area um, it was only when I got like pretty far into college actually um that i ran across a couple people that were like oh no i'm gonna be a game developer i'm like oh that's a thing no oh, yeah and you think you can do it maybe i can too so right. uh that's when it was like oh that's a job people have right, right? okay where'd, where'd you go to school um i went to uh i, I guess we've lost I've, i hadn't forgot that's where where'd you grow up Oh, where did I grow? Um, yeah. yeah, so I'm from upstate New York originally. Okay. Um, so like an hour and a half from New York City, not far. Okay. Um, and I went to college in that same area to like a small liberal arts college. Okay. Um, just like near home kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, did not have a games program at the time. They do now, and that's that's interesting. Really? That's impressive. Um, yeah, and uh, well, because they had a really good programming department because like IBM was the major like – Okay. Was a major uh, – uh, job sector in the city, right? right? So there was like a bunch of programming at the at the local college, but um, I went for English literature, and I okay. specialize in like medieval literature. Nice. So I can talk to you about Beowulf, right? <laughs> but I don't know that that really leads you to a job, right? right? Was that inspired at all by like? I don't know if you played D&D &D or like, but just like RPGs in general. It was games. definitely inspired by RPGs. But like I told you, like I grew up and I like the media that was around was I consumed and that include a lot of fantasy and sci-fi. Yeah. Right. Sure. And so like, I think, um, and like, um, yeah, fantasy and sci-fi. And I think that influenced perhaps like, yeah, I love reading. So we'll do a degree in English. And also I like old stuff. Yes. Old stuff is cool. So let me read really old stuff. And I, and I like that sort of thing, you know? Um, uh, yeah, and then when I was in college, like every chance I got, like I kind of, I kind of was one of those weird students. Like I min-maxed my scheduling. It's like yep. I have, I have to take a science course. Let me find the most interesting oddball one that's possible. Get the professor to okay me taking it. Yeah. So I took a lot of weird classes that was very multimedia, okay. right? So I took like digital art courses. I took like comparative media studies across like film and literature and things like that. Um, and so like. And I took a programming course and I took art okay. courses, you know, like. How just did a, you find programming? Um, I liked it, but I I was really frustrated mm -hmm. um, in the programming course that I took. And like, I carry this frustration with me. Uh, so I'm like, <laughs> sure. how bitter do I get right now? It was more of like, um, when learning a programming language, I had a lot of issues with the way in which now thinking back on it the way in which programming is taught which involves a lot of just memorize the syntax memorize yeah. the things that you do but don't really explain why am i saying main and then have like curly brackets i don't understand that no you don't need to understand that just memorize it these are the parts you need to understand it's like because I could not understand like a lot of the like why am I doing a thing I didn't understand I, I wasn't able to internalize like the individual bits right like I wanted to understand the grammar before I understood the words that I'm throwing into the sentences you know sure. yeah. um, so uh, so I had a lot of like issues with that but like 
the things that I enjoyed were like one level less complicated, which is I think more on par with like when we talk about scripting in games now, right? right. Um, a lot of a lot of the stuff that I made that I had a lot of fun with was uh, like I made a little a little. Um, class-based RPG fighter. You create your little character and then pit them against each other using stats and stuff like that. Not super systemic, but just systemic enough with just enough tooling. Right. Um, but not like, not really fun, right? Not right. like a really good game. But you're but messing like, around with the idea. I'm messing around with stuff and was it was enjoyable to as do. as part of your class or just once you learned um, programming no, you that mess was, around with it? No, that was messing around after and around it, right? right. Uh, um, I think, yeah, another thing was like the class just had to do real boring stuff. Yeah, sure, right. You know, like. Yeah, I always did the most I could to like twist my classes to allow me to make some sort of game. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and it's there's yeah. there's limited opportunities yeah. to do that. And I guess because you have some program, you know how to code, right? It's like we were learning Java. Right. And I suspect that maybe that was also a problem. Right. Um, when I left, when I left college, I went and. Um, I left college with an English degree and like, ooh, what do I do for a job? But everyone else was like, not everyone, but a couple other people I knew were going to do game development. And then I found a game development school that would do a master's program that didn't require you to be a programmer. And there I learned C++ as well. So I did a scripting course there. Okay. All um, right. Well, let's, let's, and, talk, let's talk through that. So you, you, met, yeah. you met some people at school yeah, yeah. who were... Uh, artists or programmers, or whatever, and they were hoping yeah, to get yeah, into games yeah, industry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met a couple of programmers from different different contexts that were like, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna make games, right?" And it was sort of like um, uh, extremely confident guys who love games and are part of games culture. And while I played a ton of games growing up, I was never part of any games culture. Not like games forums, like mm, just like. Sure. And, right. like, I played games, my friends played games, but we did not have, like... You're isolated. Yeah, yeah. We're just, we're talking with ourselves, and it's just a hobby that we have, right? right. There's no, um, uh, no, no game social media. Right. Social media wasn't well, even a phrase then, but... presumably you know. around that time, that, like, if you were tied into the internet and online stuff. That mm -hmm. would have been the time when, like, John Carmack and John Romero would become yeah, famous. Yeah, I didn't know and so who there the hell been... John Carmack right, was. Right, I mean, where, Or did John you, Romero, Did you right? know who, like, Roberta Williams was? Yes, and... yes. Okay. So that's interesting, right? Because, like, so, so... There, this might come up multiple times over the podcast, but I have a certain, like, naivety, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that seems, like, fun. Sure, I'll do that. Um, when... When I played a lot of point-and-click adventure games, there are names on some of those boxes. Yep. And the names I remember were Roberta Williams and yep. Jane Jensen. They yep. were women. Yep. And so when I finally found out that game design was a thing, I was like, oh, like those women. Like those women, And, yeah. like, clearly game designers are, like, this very naive, like, 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 this was not, like, a voice thing, but, like, it was clear when I went to grad school that was full of people trying to do game development and there weren't a ton of women. I was like, oh, I thought... I right. thought like game design was like a feminine coded profession in my head. <laughs> I didn't have any idea that it wasn't. Right. right? Yeah. 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 Uh, and it was so so it's an advantage like, oh, okay. of being isolated in that yeah, case. Yeah. 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 And also coming from an English degree, right? Like, because the yeah. classes were very skewed female. So it just wasn't in those situations where like the, the classes were so, uh, uh, gender imbalanced right? right like sure well, i had a programming class that was but i didn't really notice it sure right i mean like um, when you're talking about authors right you yeah know, it's men and women i mean yeah. it's all mixed yeah. together and like yeah. the the type of games that sierra made they kind of do feel like authorial yeah. right yeah like, yeah yeah um yeah so okay so you did have that kind of model 
and you saw some people who were going to... And, uh, yeah, so I, so I ran across some programmers who, like, in college were like, I'm I'm learning programming because I want to be game, become yep. a game developer. Um, and I don't think any, I don't think either of them succeeded at it. Okay. Um, so we don't need to belabor that point, right? But, but hearing them talk about it was the first time I heard, hmm, this is a job and that might like there's a there's a reach there right yeah. like like I could I could start thinking through the steps that it might take for someone to be like real right yep. instead of a name on a box or like this amorphous concept of computer games as a product right and that was when I started doing like actual research and I started looking up things online and I started learning oh game design is a thing and then I found um a grad school right because I was looking at grad schools at the time as well because I did not want to enter the workforce with an English degree yet right you know sure um yeah I think uh me going into games was very much of a, well, I like games and I don't know what else I'll do and I can get a master's. So if it doesn't work out, I at least have credentials least have of some sort. Right. And so I kind of was just like, I'm going to just go, go do it. And that worked out extremely well for me, but perhaps is not like the decision-making process that most people should go through. Right. Sure. You know? Well, um, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people are in that position in college. Yeah. Like at least now, I guess, people don't think of video game development as some like imaginary thing, yeah. right? You know, so, but anyway, so you went to what, what, what school was this? Um, I went to Guildhall, which is like okay. SMU's, yep. like, um, uh, their game development program. Yeah. yeah. And I think, uh, they had been like a certificate program for a few years, not very long, but, um, they had a proper master's program. Yeah. Um, an accreditation accredited, uh, degree was really important to me and I couldn't find others. Yeah, sure. Um, I think, uh, I think USC existed and I didn't find it at the time. Okay, um, and I yeah. think if I had found it, that might've actually been the place that I went to instead. Yeah. And I don't think NYU's program was available yet. And there were other programs, but they required like, like, I think Carnegie Mellon had a, had yep. their, had their program, but like, I think you had to have a computer science degree to do it. Okay. Um, and that was like, well, I have an English degree, so yeah. I can't join all these other programs that are actually related to games. Um, and so I was like, well, Guildhall will accept me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I and I whipped up a portfolio with stuff that I had never done before, but was fun to do. So I was like, you know, I created a 2D level design on paper, great mm -hmm. detail, and uh, and it wasn't terrible. Um, I, I wish I still had it. 2D that would be level nice design work. for like a platformer? Like a platformer, yeah. Because okay. they just wanted you to do, like, here's a, at the time, I don't know what their requirements are these days. Like, at the time, it was like, show some portfolio pieces, which, like, at the time, I didn't know modding was a thing. So I also didn't even have the words to find, like, yeah. they mentioned some engines, right? So I looked up um, the Aurora tool set with... Mm -hmm. um, uh, Neverwinter Nights, right? Yep. And I and I downloaded that and I tried that and I I made something pretty but completely non-functional. But I didn't need to know that. I just sent some screenshots, right? Um, little bit of like I'm totally fine. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, and they had like oh I'm trying to remember what like the requirements were, but it was like. Like part of the portfolio was like, here's like almost like a design test that you would do at a company for like a junior designer. It's like, hey, here's some requirements, like go design a 2D level with these requirements. Like here's your character. Here's how big they are. Here's your pickups, right? Just a, a 2D action uh, puzzle um, or not puzzle, an action platformer um, on graph paper. And so I did that um, and then they accepted me into the program. And uh, I, I remember because I was so outside of games like... 
I didn't know much about games and I hadn't been like a lot of the, especially like a lot of the guys in the program were like, I was coming straight out of college and I was 21. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think like the average age was like 26, 27 sure. among the students. Yeah. Um, and they also were like a lot of people that wanted to be game developers for years. Yeah. And I knew nothing about it. So I just kept my mouth shut when they were like, so like, I remember one of the first classes, it was just like, you know, just history of games and games in general. And I remember the professor was like, so let's write down like, like someone give me the name of a publisher. And I'm like, what's a publisher? (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) And someone, and like someone was like THQ and I'm like, what's THQ? Of course they're not around anymore, but like, like I didn't know a lot of this sort of stuff. Right. And like I played a lot of games and so I could talk about individual games, but like I couldn't talk about Blizzard but I could talk about Diablo, right? right? Like there was like a very big difference and like a gulf, a gulf there, right? But I found the work in grad school really interesting, right? right. Like just like the game, game design, level design, um, technical constraints and like trying to figure things out. So right. it's like... So, so that was pretty early on and they had, they had a, what you consider a good program that long ago? Yeah, I mean, um, I have mixed thoughts about the program and I think a lot of it has to do with like when I look at what exists now, I can identify stuff that would have suited me and my sure. aesthetics and my my sort of like things that would have suited me better. But like Guildhall was a very vocational program. It right. had industry connections, yep. people within the industry, you know, like set in Texas. And like um, there were a lot of like online and MMO stuff that was in Texas at the time, which yeah. is kind of like, you know. Uh, I mean, that, that was at a time where the industry needed people you yeah know, like yeah. period so yeah. like you know as you do, as long as you do a competent job like you're gonna yeah. find a way in the industry and they were very much training like vocational leveled and this is for like the design part of the program because there's programmers and artists too and i think the program now is expanded to include producers um mm-hmm. but at the time they were really training designers to kind of fill into like level design on double a games and like double a games at the time then were like you know, tie-ins for IP, yeah. uh, lots of third-person and first-person FPS and action games. Um, and so a lot of the curriculum was about that, which were like a genre that I had no interest in. Right. Um, but I found the, like, I don't know, like, I had never played, with the exception of, like, Doom, right? Okay, right. I really didn't play any FPSs. Right. So uh, there was some element of, like, all right, and then your first class is, we're going to do speed mapping in Unreal. Right. Right? And I still remember the first map I made in Unreal wasn't a speed map, but it was, like, for for the class. And we're supposed to make a map for a 16-player uh, uh, death match. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, it, I wish I had a copy of it because it's just really funny yeah. uh, how bad it was. I, I mean, you probably had never played a deathmatch? I never played... I mean, I played Doom, right? And, like... No, I never played but multiplayer deathmatch. Right. No, and I didn't know how much room 16 players needed. Right. So everyone was... And I also didn't know, like, level design principles, right? So, like, I made a very technically competent in terms of, like, using BSP and, like, texturing and stuff like that. Like, it's a bit too into the environmental art sort of, like, using of the tools. Um, but I basically made, like, a vertical figure eight that you climbed up a... You climbed up, like, a spiral staircase and then it went back down again. Mm-hmm. And I remember like because everyone would jump into everybody else's maps because you know we have 16 people in the yep. in the class we're all gonna play all the maps and i remember like people start saying 
is this just like everyone's just in a line and they're just, <laughs> they're just like, Shoot the person it's just in front linear. Of you. It's just yeah. linear. And the first person that stopped and turned around was the first person who would start to win. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't seem like a good design <laughs> idea at all. And it was interesting, right? Because we did so many speed mapping exercise in that class and like the, 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 it took me about a year, right? And then after a year, my maps were pretty solid. Like I could yeah. do capture the flag and death map. Well, uh, deathmatch and like. I mean, that seems really cool because that's like that's just. I mean, forget the genre or whatever. That's yeah. just iteration. Yeah. Right. You yes. do something. You yeah. test it probably this same week or yeah. even whatever. Right. Yeah. And like you'd been, you it's yeah. pretty and obvious. What's a lot wrong. of the speed maps were like, all right, an hour we're gonna make something, and then we're all gonna play everyone's stuff, right? Yeah. And that was like in the class, so it's like go fast. Um, and a lot of stuff was bad. A lot of everyone else's stuff was bad. Yeah. Um, and that was fine, right? Right. What um, did what did you learn? I mean, like, can you can you describe like how to make a good map now? Oh my god. Um, I haven't done level design in a really long time now. Um, yeah, like 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 some of the things that I obviously learned were like a lot of it had to do with like intentional choices that a player could make using level design as like the mechanism for choice, right? Okay. So it's like, I am at a crossroads or I am here and I am in cover. And if I want to like from this position in this map, what are my choices? What are my tactics? Um, what are, it's not just like, like a lot of it clearly is like my sight lines, like who would I be able to attack from this spot? And like, because these were mostly like, you know, uh, FPSs that yep. we were doing. Like it was a lot of Unreal and um, uh, Quake and right. just a lot of games that everyone else had played that I had never heard of. <laughs> so funny, right? I was like, right? Did you come to enjoy this yeah. type of genre? Like, yeah, I mean, this process? I, I still don't play these games, but I have a much better like appreciation for them but it was just like so many of the references were over my head right it's mm -hmm. like we would load into a map um uh i remember us as a group like the professor had us all load into a quake map and we played and i was like oh this is bad and then he's telling me it's like dm 17 or something like the most which is probably not even right and you know, mm -hmm. like one of the most famous quake maps that everyone loves and is perfectly well balanced. And I was like, I thought it was bad. And it's like trying to 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 come in and like I have my own instincts about what is good and not. And I'm coming so far outside of that genre and I don't understand like a lot of that genre. Um, and uh, because I knew how little I knew, I was very humble and I just like, listen, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so like a lot of other people had strong opinions about this sort of stuff and I could sort of map the gulf between my experience ends at a point, so therefore my ability to evaluate its design also kind of has some flaws and there's stuff that I'm missing, right? Like I can't fully appreciate why this Quake map is so good because I don't understand a lot of the, uh, uh, I guess high level play and tactical right. play and I don't have the experience with it but I can listen to other people that do have that experience and I can start to learn, right? right. I can't mimic it. Now, you, so the issue kind of is you, you liked a different type of game. Did, yeah. did they have any avenue for you? Because yeah. like that's... Well, yes, a, a bit. Um, we did a lot of modding and one of the games we modded was Oblivion. Okay. And I was like, oh yeah, yeah. like I over scope, <laughs> talk about scope. Like I was all into the Oblivion mod, you know, I made a multi, multi quest story where all the quests intertwined and then ended with like a peasant revolt that massacred, you know, the count 
yeah. of the castle. It was good fun. Um, and I enjoyed that, and I enjoyed, like, figuring a lot of that sort of stuff out and a lot of the technical stuff. The, the, the example you just gave, would that have been something other students would have played? Would you have gotten feedback no, on it? No, we didn't play... Mm, did we play... I don't think we played each other's maps there because... That, those weren't speed mapping exercises. Sure. And, the, and the, it's not good. Like, you can't do an RPG as a speed mapping exercise. Sure. I guess um, my, I'm, I'm trying to get back to, yeah. like, the, f to me, feedback is such an important part yeah. of learning how to be a designer. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's it's cool to make yeah. all that stuff and the quests, but, like, there's a big part missing if you aren't able to, like, do get the, edi a, the editing part, essentially. Loop. Yeah. I, I think um, when we did Oblivion, not quite so much. I think I learned a lot more just from the process of implementation rather than a feedback loop. Yeah. When I... Um, because it was a master's program, there was like a final project, right? Yes. Like my master's project. Um, and my master's project was <laughs> different from a lot of other people's. I made, right. uh, it's very academic. This is why I was like, I don't know if this was the per perfect school to do these work, but it was like on the iterated prisoner's dilemma. So I was like using game theory, mm -hmm. mathematical game theory and applying it to a game. And so, so prisoner's dilemma I don't know. Do you want me to get it? Uh, I mean, I go ahead. You know, you know yeah. what prisoner's dilemma is, right? And prisoner's dilemma is like, um, you know, you have two people, you separate them and you put them in separate rooms, right. and you say like, you can, you, you can, can betray the other one. You can but... betray each other. Like, if one of you betrays the other person, then you go free yep. and they go to jail. If you both betray each other, you're both stuck in jail. Yep. If neither of you rat each other out, then you're fine. You can't be. It's a, such an Americanized <laughs> sure. story, right? Um, and iterated prisoner's dilemma is interesting because, like, if you play prisoner's dilemma once, most of the time people betray each other, right? Right. Um, in an iterated prisoner's dilemma, that means, you're, like, you're in a population of people and you're playing the game over and over again. And you learn to cooperate, right? Because a you successful you're, tactic... You're in a larger pool? In like a larger pool, pool and played and... over and over again, right? right. The winning tactic in when played in an iterated way is, uh, is, is tit for tat with forgiveness. There's actually one more that's like a little bit better, but it's like, right. I will start with cooperating. Mm -hmm. And the first time you, player B, betrays me, I'm gonna betray you. Right. So if you start with cooperation, you both start with cooperation, you succeed much better than people who start out with betrayal. Right. And when you're in a large pool of people and you're sort of like doing these sort of like choices over time and you can remember who, who betrayed you and who cooperated with you, you use that against them and like you can create sort of um uh create sort of like an ecosystem that will that will uh it, it, cooperation bubbles to the top. Mm -hmm. um, over those sort of like iterated play. Um, and so I wanted to experiment with that in a game. I wanted to say, you're not just doing prisoner's dilemma. You're doing an iterated prisoner's dilemma. You're doing that choice over and over again between two players in a co-op slash competitive sort of like, um, environment. Um, but it turns out that, uh, well, it, it it turns out that like things like a prisoner's dilemma is a very narrative-y, like you need time to think and then make your choice. And I implemented it in like a top-down shooter that you had to make your choices within like a second. Yeah. Not a great environment. Um, but you asked about like feedback, like that was the game that I constantly was testing with people. Okay. Um, and so I learned a lot of things that were like almost incidental to that project mm -hmm. of like seeing like I had this sort of like pure idea of like, I need to implement a iterated prisoner's dilemma. It has certain like scores and mathematical implementation 
uh, implications of like how to set stuff up so I could test my hypothesis, Mm -hmm. which did not make a good game. Right. Okay. Um, And so there was like a tension during that project and I kept it with like trying to prove out iterated prisoner's dilemma while also acknowledging that there's a much better game that I could have made. That's just fun using a lot of the same mechanics, but throwing away like the hypothesis, right? Like the high level design hypothesis that I was trying to explore did not actually make for a good game. Um, Okay. If that kind of makes sense. Right. But you never jettisoned the hypothesis? Like... No, because my master's pro- project. Right. Right? Okay. It, it, to, to some extent, it was like, because it, it was an academic... Uh, exercise. It was an academic exercise, you know? Right. Um, uh, like, what would, have been the, what would have been the thing that you would change to make it I fun? I would have thrown that part out entirely and just made a fun, like, a fun top-down, like... Two, two people versus, uh, uh, it wasn't quite a bullet hell, but like two people versus um, a horde of enemies, you know, oh, just okay. and just make that fun. Right, sure. Right? Whereas it's like, all right, I had that. It could be fun, but let me put all this time and effort into these sort of game systems um, uh, and like game theory and implementing game theory into a game. Uh, and I learned a lot from doing that. Like I learned a lot about like game systems. I learned a lot about like cooperative play and psychology of cooperative play and also just learned that that was like the worst possible genre that I could have tied with a prisoner's dilemma experiment. It should have been like a trivia game or something yeah. like that. Things things like, I don't know, prisoner's dilemma and rock, paper, scissors and yeah. all these other like kind of like very, um, you know, kind of like game theory type thing. I'm failing to think of like the obvious third one, but like, um, they they can be very small parts of bigger designs, yeah. right? They need like a bunch of other stuff that that ob, ob, obfuscates like mm-hmm. the, that little core thing yeah. in there, right? Yeah. Like it's hard to make a game that's just about that. Or you do it the opposite way, because like I think that what drew me to it is like so when I play games, I like I'm so interested in edges of systems. I'm interested in like breaking social taboos. I'm interested in betraying all my friends of like like all the things you can do like if I'm given a choice I'm if I'm given a prisoner's dilemma story choice mm-hmm. and my friend is in the other room I am 100% of the time betraying them and they all know that I'm going to do that right and I find that kind of dynamic like that social dynamic really interesting right um, and so like if I were to attempt that sort of thing now I wouldn't do it from a mathematical point of view I would just do it from a what's an interesting um dilemma choice that you can put two players in that kind of explores the tension between cooperation and competition. Right. Um, right. Yeah. Hmm. Cool. All right. Yeah. So you, uh, <laughs> you finished up your program at, yeah. at Guildhall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. When I was there, I, I interned at Volition. I worked on Saints Row 2. Okay. Um, that was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed that. Cool. Um, that what, what were you What were you doing? Uh, they had me do a little bit of everything, and I loved everything that they had me do. Right. So, like, when I first started on that internship, I, I wrote Barks, um, and then I did a whole lot of mission scripting. I did, they had me sit down and play every mini game, and then write up design responses to it. Um, they had me sit down and, like, 
tune the shotgun and we very all quickly understood that that is not a that is not a task for Liz. That is not a Liz shaped <laughs> task and will never be in my entire career. Never I will never tune a weapon correctly. Um, but I got the chance to do that, right? Um, and I did a lot, yeah, a lot of mission scripting. I set up cinematics, just like they just threw a little bit of everything at me and I, I kind of enjoyed all of it. Um, so yeah, I did an internship on that game. And then when I went to graduate, um, I actually almost went to Volition after graduating, um, but uh, uh, another company had reached out to me. So like they had a fairly good, like my grad school had a fairly good, like career and outreach sort of thing. Like come, come hire our students. There wasn't quite as many of these schools out there. Yeah. Um, and so like we had career fairs and stuff like that. And I think like, uh, uh, I think some of my work and my background, maybe the way I talked about the design, like I, I had a lot of interviews, so I had a lot of opportunities. Um, but one small company had reached out and were like interviewing students um, and it was Fifth Cell. And mm -hmm. they had previously been making Drawn to Life, right? Uh, which yep. is like a platform or a game where you can draw your little character into it. Um, and I remember, I remember talking to my roommate at the time, and uh, I, t I asked him, I was like, should I talk to them? Because I kind of think I should just go to Volition. And he was like, Liz, you just should talk to everybody, you know? Yeah. Of course. Um, so I ended up going to Fifth Cell um, after I graduated. Um, and then I went to work on the Scribblenauts games. Okay. So uh, they recruited me straight out of school to be the first, I think it was the first full-time developer on that game too, because they were really? still finishing up another game. Yeah. So it was just a concept at that point. Oh yeah, it was just like a two-page pitch. Um, and at one point there was a previous designer who had shifted projects, who had did some like initial, like, um, almost like previs level design work of like, what would these sort of scribble knot scenarios look like if you could write any word in the known, like a word for any noun in the known dictionary, right? Like yeah. what, what would a puzzle for these might look like? Um, and he had done that sort of previs work before shifting over to a different project and they, uh, yeah, during my interview, they showed me the pitch document, and it was like, it was a bit Rube Goldberg machine-like, but it was like, yeah, you can write anything, and you can write a bird or a tree or a ladder. Um, uh, and I was a baby game designer, so I didn't know there was like a concept of games that couldn't ship, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like this is such a silly <laughs> idea, and it's also like if someone pitched it now, it'd be like, no, absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, I was just I was just trying to figure out to ask that question. I'd be like, nowadays, someone tells me that, I'd be like, well, that's impossible. Yeah, I didn't so, know any better. I was just like, oh yeah, that sounds interesting. But yeah, if you're you're if you're in the exact position that you are, you'd be like, well, they must know what they're talking yeah. about. I was. This sounds like the best yeah. game ever. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was 23, and yeah. I was like, well, I could work on um i don't know what volition was hiring for it's probably saints row three right, you know or sure. i could work on like that or i could go work on this game where it's like yeah you can spawn anything in the known universe sounds great like that sounds interesting sounds so much more interesting right what's the worst that could happen i could get laid off the company could close i didn't know any of those things were possible right, right? i was just like cool they're gonna pay me and i'm gonna work on this weird thing so i'll work on this weird thing yeah um and i remember like the first task i really had was like about a month that I worked on the project mostly by myself while other people were working on other things. And it was just building out a spreadsheet of, of things. Of things, right? objects that like, you could write. Yeah, you know, like just like, all right, if we have to be able to spawn anything, it's like, okay, what what constitutes as anything? Like let's map out that space. Wow, that's um, like a that's like a totally blue sky project yeah. to give a new game developer, you know. But just I was like, like, yeah, I can figure this out. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, yeah. Did you have some sort of constraints you were told about, like in terms of like what type of objects? No. Like, you everything know, in the known trees universe. are okay because they're stationary. No. But like, blah, blah, okay. No, it was actually the other way around, right? Because like, like we had a great tech director at the company. Like, he was mostly on the other project, but like obviously, obviously part of like discussions, right? And I remember like a lot of things that I came up with were things like, okay, we have a tree. I'd expect to be able to chop a tree down. Like that was a big question. That was a big issue and things like that. And like, I remember writing down lists of things and being like, hmm, there's a category of things. They're ropes. How do ropes work? Now I'd never worked on a game properly before. So I didn't know ropes were like a hard thing in games necessarily, but I could anticipate they were. And I was like, all right, we've got ropes. We've also got fishing poles and lassos. And like, here's how I'd expect them to work. And like, a lot of a lot of that initial work was like categorization work, yeah, and also like identifying like what kind of levers a player would expect if I want to be able to interact with this thing in like a really simple way. I remember um, it wasn't like significantly into the project, but I remember like a few months in, we had had plenty of these meetings of being like, "Here's a new system that like this like." Just discuss systems like how does fire work in our game like in fire propagation and temp there was a whole temperature system um every single object in the game had a boiling point and a melting point right uh so i know the boiling point of a lion it's a very it's just a very <laughs> ridiculous game right um it's what is it, does the lion turn into it, sets, it gets caught on fire right. so when something hits its boiling point it doesn't actually boil it's just like the the temperature is high enough in the area and this object has been in the area long enough, enough for its temperature to go up that it goes to a spot where smoke starts to show up right. and then it spontaneously combusts Combust. and catches fire. Yeah, okay. um, it's very hard for a lion to hit a boiling point. Right. But if you like put lava and fire all around it and wait, mm -hmm. then the temperature will raise. Um, some of these were like design decisions, but a lot of them were also technical decisions, right? Yeah. Like I think like intuitively a lot of people could like discuss like, all right, we need to be able to set fire to things and also like how do I freeze things? Right. Like and what does it mean for something to be frozen? Um, I remember being in a meeting being like raising my hand and being like, so there's a whole type of object we forgot. Mm -hmm. Containers. <laughs> we need to be able to put things you inside should. of other things. Right. And I remember that meeting, right? Because I was like, oh, yeah, okay. Whole new category of objects we had not considered before. Right. Um, and that was like a large part of like that initial job was just like identifying categories of things that need to do types of things. It was very like systems design without realizing like I didn't know how unique of a role it really was. Right. Um yeah, it's a really interesting position. Um, so you are identifying things that would eventually become tasks for programmers to yeah. like turn and, into. And systems that would then include flags so that I as a designer could go in and I can say, now that we have a concept of containers and I'm setting up a kangaroo. Right. Kangaroos kangaroo absolutely can, also need to be containers. containers yeah. And I could do that, right? Because, so was because every, they're all systems. Was every object kind of just a giant list of booleans? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's... Uh, booleans and numbers and um, sure. uh, booleans and numbers. And then we had like AI had this concept of like, I mean, AI, but like very simplified, right? It was mm. just like, what is it attracted to and what is it repulsed by? Sure. Right. Right. Um, okay. And uh, because that'd be important for the puzzles. Very right. important for the puzzles. Yeah. And like very, in a lot of ways, very customized, right? Because like we tried to do stuff with inheritance. Um, like mm -hmm. here's a mammal. Yeah. All mammals are a certain thing. Here's like a, here's like um, 
oh no, I'm going to forget all the terms, right? But like a dolphin is a different kind of mammal than a yeah, lion, right? And right. it's like, all right, here's all the cat-like mammals, right? For example, lions and cats and a jaguar, right? Like they're all cat-like. So they can inherit some things. You know, they're all carnivores. They eat they eat certain things. They all play with yarn, you know, like, like <laughs> you know, yarn. they just, you know. Play specifically with yarn? It was yarn yeah, the category no. of No, like, no, no, thing. no, no, no. Oh, it's just like, there's a, you could do categories of things, but categorization was really hard. Okay. So slowly but surely over time to get the right results, it involved a lot of me going through and being like, all right, all cats are attracted to yarn uh-huh. and will eat mice, right? Specifically. Right. And it's also more important. So like you could do a category of thing. You could say all cats are going to chase um, all small mammals, right. right? But if you put a mouse on one side of a cat and a hedgehog on the other side of the cat, right. where Which do you expect a cat to go first? Right. A mouse. Yeah. So you actually need to split out the hierarchy and not just rely on categories of things. You can do categories of things to do fallbacks, but the most important parts of the identity of the object were actually the things that were most important to replicate in the game. That cats chase mice. Right. That is super important. And that elephants fear mice, but right. not other rodents, right? Right. Um, and that a cop will chase a donut before they chase a criminal, right? I mean, like, really, you're making like a pop version of reality. Yes, yes, right? yes. Because that's the thing that's, that's the stuff that's important, is the interaction yeah. between things. It's not that it's, it's not, um, there's no realistically simulated elf elements of scribble knots, right? It is, what do you expect to happen? And then doing that. So it's very much the cartoonish version yeah. of reality. Yeah, I guess I never thought of it. It's interesting that it was like scribble was part of the concept, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, I guess I always thought of like of a, an extension of drawn to life. And presumably mm-hmm. that was part of it. But the other part is it's important that it's a cartoon. Yes. Right. That it's yeah. not, there's no, it doesn't, people don't, people don't think like this is a simulation. Right. Right. Um, and like, yeah, it was very like, you want to have silly puzzles that rely on like like your intuitive sense and like lateral thinking puzzles just like just don't make a simulation game that that you saw with lateral thinking puzzles that's a mistake right um, but we made that mistake and it was fascinating to try to 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 solve but like the example that I've used before has been like um, wait say, say the thing you said before yeah. that it's about lateral thinking? It's lateral thinking puzzles, right? So the, the first Scribblenauts game was very much of like a puzzle platformer. You get to a star. Mm-hmm. You just have to get to the star. Right. Um, uh, on hindsight, I don't think that was like a good design. Like Scribblenauts is not a game that is should be about platforming and yeah. navigating a space because you just spawn a helicopter, get in into it, and fly over there. Right. So like a lot of the puzzles had to do with like, all right, what do we put in the sky that will destroy helicopters? Right. Oh, it was geez. always like, how do you stomp like the things players to get players thing. to think outside the box? And there was there were some things that we tried, right? Like I don't remember. I think we tried it in the first game, um, and not in the second. But it was like, can we do something where you can't spawn the same object twice? Right. And you actually have to go through the whole... I think there was a mode of play either in the first one or it was achievement in the second one. I can't remember for sure. But it was like, you use a ladder now, you can never use a ladder again. But you could use a step ladder. <laughs> right? Like, oh, no. you just know no more words for it. Oh, that's horrible. That is rough. Yeah, yeah it's rough. real rough, right? Um, but like slowly but surely, you would run out of words and you'd have to start thinking outside the box. And that was kind of interesting. Okay. But At least there was a constraint. I mean, it feels like without there, some sort of constraint. But there wasn't really like like... 
yeah, there was like some constraints in that like we would design levels to make it really hard for you to use easy objects to solve. Um, the second game uh, was much better in that regard because the types of puzzles were not about getting to a spot. Mm -hmm. I think there were some puzzles where involved get to the star, but most of the time the star was a reward that you were given for solving a problem, right? So what like, are these, what, for example? The example, an example would have been a, um, oh, the vampire is one, one is a bad one to use. Um, because we couldn't put blood in like a Nintendo game, <laughs> bodily functions, ESRB. Um, uh, a good example might have been the eye doctor, right? There's okay. a guy at the eye doctor. Help him pass his eye exam. What okay. do you spawn to help someone pass their eye exam? Um, glasses? Yeah, glasses. Easy. Right. Answer. Or an eyeball. <laughs> an eyeball. Or binoculars or a magnifying glass or give him a carrot to eat, right? Like, okay. like, and that's one of the things is like a lot of these puzzles were like designers, cause at that point the so at this point, got a bit bigger. So that's interesting, yeah. it's funny because you're, now you're essentially making an adventure game except you get to make your own inventory. Yes, and your inventory is any, any noun and players by the way don't really understand what a noun is. They don't understand the parts of speech so that's a whole other issue. <laughs> um, really? Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and were and, people trying to write <laughs> verbs? I mean, what was that even mean? Um, so like, okay, so so scribble knots, you could spawn any noun as long yeah. as it wasn't like a an abstract concept. Like you couldn't spawn <laughs> beauty, free, freedom. Yeah, you right. can't spawn freedom, and you couldn't spawn uh, trademark stuff. So everyone was sure. like, "Why can't I spawn a taser? Why are there no tasers in the game?" And I'm like, "Oh, educate like, yeah, yeah, just, yeah." Right? It's a tissue, not um, a Kleenex. But yeah, yeah, and right. also you couldn't spawn anything that uh, the SRB didn't like, which is like blood, sure. right, is a good example of that. Um, you couldn't put poop in the game, but you could put fertilizer, <laughs> right? So it's like we had our own little internal workarounds what, what for things. What happened if you typed in poop? Um, it just So whenever you typed in a word that our dictionary didn't acknowledge, it would say, did you mean, and okay. we'd give you three examples. Okay. So things that would happen in the first game would be like, really, really, really big poop, someone would write. Yeah. And they wouldn't pay attention to the fact that you couldn't spawn that. It would still tell you what so you could spawn something, and it would click on it, and something would happen. And that was, it was not like necessarily good design, but it was like a level of satisfaction that players got because they could type something, and the game responded, and it didn't stop, right? Like right. there was still a way to move forward. Um, in the second game, we added adjectives. Okay. So um, that this, which is its own whole. Yeah. Like there are there's so many like one sixth of the English language is adjectives, and right. any verb can be turned into an adjective. Yeah. Um, and players also don't know what an adjective is or what an adverb is, and the difference <laughs> between them. Or okay. like, yeah, um, yeah. Oh no. <laughs> Was adding adjectives a bad idea? Um, well, it was funny, right? Because like when we finished Scribble Nuts, and I was like, "We're gonna do a sequel." I remember telling the creative director, "I was like, if you add adjectives, I'm gonna quit." <laughs> um, and then he was like, "We're gonna do adjectives," and I'm like, "Let me tell you why this is a bad idea." And I remember doing math, um, and uh, the math was like, what we had what we had settled on was you have a noun, you have an object, and you can apply up to five adjectives to it. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's not just like a big box. It's like a hungry, hungry, red, carnivorous, pregnant, 
flying box. Like, just like, just pile a bunch of adjectives on it. And they all had to work, right? What um, would happen if you would type that in? Uh, then you would get like a, a pregnant box? big pregnant, well, pregnant box. Pregnant stuff was hilarious because there was a slight timer and then a baby Another version of that would out. pop out. Okay, all just right. Like, I guess that sort of. Whenever people are like, what's your favorite Easter egg you put in a game? And I'm like, I mean, the Scrimmelnauts games, right? It's like everything in that everything. game was just Easter eggs, yeah. right? It's just like, oh, that's funny. Like, let's see what happens when I write pregnant Brocks. Um, uh, and uh, that sort of thing. So uh, so they added adjectives to it. And I remember, I remember being like, all right, uh, let's say we start automating our testing instead of doing it by hand, right? Like, let's pretend that we automate testing uh, for a game like this. Uh -huh. And uh, and we did. we did. We did automate some of this testing, right? And it's like, all right, if you spawn an object up to five adjectives and you have 10,000 unique objects, plus there's adjectives on those objects, but they're just like, you know, lookup tables, right? So like 10,000 unique objects, 20,000 unique adjectives mm. that had their own unique setup to them. Um, and was it 20,000? Now I'm making up numbers. No, it was 5,000, excuse me. 5,000 unique object adjectives. And that's because you could like, something that's sad and heartbroken is essentially the same, same thing, thing, right? right? Yeah. Um, and so you didn't do have to do as much custom. There's a lot more, um, a lot more synonyms among adjectives than there were objects. So 10,000 objects, up to 5,000 adjectives, and you can combine one object with anywhere between zero to five adjectives. And I, so I did the math and I was like, all right, if we are testing a hundred a second, like just spawning them to see if they break, because in the first Knots there were objects that just broke uh, in the game, just like the right combination. It would like, your DS is frozen. Good luck. Right. Um, it just happened on Knots, right? So we were like, if you spawned a hundred a second, just to test that they would crash. I told them that we had two options. We could either have one computer run this and test every combination and it would take 33 billion years, <laughs> or we could have 33 billion computers run it for a year right, yeah. to test it. Um, and that kind of like mapped out the problem space and I was like, cool, we're gonna do this anyway. <laughs> so yeah, and, and, and there, there seems like there's a certain amount of like, you know, like was the thing about like the Peter principle, like you keep getting, Certain print keeps getting promoted until they hit like in comes up. <laughs> Seems like there's a thing with sequels where, like, you have to keep adding. So you keep have to adding something new until you get to the thing yeah. that you add. That's like, oh, okay, that was a bad idea. Yeah, and like the third game, I worked on pre-production on the third game and left. But the third game, what they added was uh, user-generated content. You create your own stuff. Oh wow! Right, and okay. so so the first game here's a bunch of systems for creating objects and like containers or boiling points or like electricity, like is this electrified? Does this conduct electricity? Like all those sort of things and like AI and stuff like that. When we added adjectives, we could take all those systems and then we could turn anything into a container. We could give anything an AI. We could say, oh, you're carnivorous now? Well, you eat and here's your here's your list of things that now added to your AI. Um, you're sentient, so now you can walk. And that was like, you know, we can now make any object walk. So. Adjectives was actually kind of like really interesting because every adjective was just like, we modify some elements of the system and add it as a layer on top of a base object. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we got to UGC stuff, like the first, the pre-production work that I did was trying to take those systems and say, all right, now what if we gave these 
flags to players. Mm. And we already had those systems. We had already done a whole bunch of stuff. So I was just like, it was a natural next step, actually, right. um, okay. to say, like, all right, we players are going to want stuff that conducts electricity. Here are the flags we have in our tool. Here's how I might simplify and present that to players. Um, and so that actually seemed like a good, like, path forward. But I think by that time, I was kind of, like, done with Scribble Knots. Sure. You know, I was just like, I want to do something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's uh, maybe, um, <laughs> I'm trying to, this, Scribble is such an interesting project. Yeah, that, it like, is. I'm trying to, like, get some interest like it, to me it always seemed kind of impossible so how how is it possible so like as a designer and i feel like this is the instinct of most like good designers they're like i want to know about the systems behind it and the answer is every single object was an xml file and you could open it in the editor and you could hand tune every single value on it and i did a lot of that right. i did a lot of that because like I said before, with inheritance, like didn't work too well because the most important thing, the most important thing about a cat is that it chases a mice and it chases yarn. Yeah. Right. Um, and there was no real way to like scrape information to populate these things. Right. You had to like rely on player feedback, QA, caching things, people just saying, "I expected X and that didn't happen." Your so now it becomes a new bug. task. This must have been Oh, it was insane. insane. I made friends. I made friends with someone in QA, like the publisher QA that I have uh -huh. never met in real life okay. just because of the aesthetic types of bugs that she <laughs> would write me, right? And like I on average I think I would wake I get up I get in the morning and I get like three hundred new bugs. Mm -hmm. Right. Um and that was like it was just so many bugs, but it was like, you know, I'm like, oh, they tried to spawn a swordfish and then stab someone with it. Yeah, that's should right. be able we to cut do down a tree with a swordfish for sure. Yeah. Like, but so it's it's a lot of those logical leaps and stuff like that. Um, a lot of just like like sitting down and doing the work. Right. Um, and I think about that as a project in terms of like now that I have a lot more like systems literacy and like I know how to author systems how would I do it differently and there are some things I do it I do differently but I think ultimately it would still come down to going down and doing the detail work of like what makes a swordfish different from other fish right the fact that it's also a sword I have to do things that are unique to that object that are not unique to other objects and multiply that by 10,000 sure you know right yeah but it's also very just very data driven it, right yeah. like and you know, you just have to work through the work of doing the data. Mm -hmm. And was, was, were puzzles the right thing to do with that system? Because there, theoretically other things you could do with yeah. such a open-ended yeah. system. Um, so, so I, I'm not going to pretend it was my idea. It was actually one of the producers on the project on the first Scribblenauts game, um, had this idea and I was like, you're right. Um, his idea was we should do something, Still, still within the realm of puzzles, but right. But like he was like, let's do it. it's a birthday party. Fill this, decorate for a birthday party. Like just decorate, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like you have a meter, and when you get to the end of the meter, you've decorated for the birthday party. This is what your birthday party looks like. Ta-da! Next, and that was like we we integrated some of this into Scribble Knots too with some of the contextual puzzles. Um, uh, and I think it came in a little bit with the third game, but I didn't really play the third game because by then I was off the project. Um, and I do think that like a game with a tool like that might have worked better in a like go decorate go because it's just like here's 
a huge amount of assets, and then you can press play to see how how it plays out. But right. the simulation is not very robust, right? It's a very brittle simulation that's all about like first order reactions are what you would expect from like this sort of like chaotic cartoonish environment. Um, so the thing that this stuff is going to play out very quickly, whatever is going to play happen. out very quickly. Yeah. And like with how it was made and like it was very quick, it was very chaotic and it was very hard to read. Mm. Right. Like, um, like an example, an example of something is like you put a character down, right? And you put like a cake next to them. They're going to run over and you're going to eat the cake. And it's like, yeah, that makes sense. You put a character down, you put a cake down. And then on the other side of the cake, you put like, you know, a hydra, right? With like mm. three heads, right? And then the person, you, and then like you press play. And in this case, you don't really need to press play. You just place the objects, right? They're going to run away. But what the player sees is that they ran away from the cake, not the hydra. Because the cake was the closest thing to the object. So identifying cause and effect, identifying like why a person did something yeah. was pretty inscrutable. Um, Readability-wise, you just implied that it was ever the last thing that you as a player put down in the screen is what a character might be reacting to, or it's the closest thing to that character. Um, so, so that's why it's like... It's a simulation-y game. It's definitely a systems-y game, right? But it lacks the ability for players to be able to read and understand those underlying systems. Right. Um, yeah. Because I'm trying in my mind to try to like, think through like some other games that have some stuff that's... I mean, it's similar, but not, I mean, there's nothing similar to scribble Yeah. But, you know, it's something like Minecraft where you have, like, this little ecosystem of, like, oh, I've got the chickens and then I've mm -hmm. got the, whatever, the wolf and the wolf eats yeah. the chicken and it does this. And, like, yeah. there's there's lots of games that mess around with that. And it just seems like, um, you know, scribble Dots had a lot of potential in terms of you, you know, you categorize, like, the whole yeah. world, right? Yeah. And it's just, like, you kind of think of, like, what else could you do with do, that, right? Do with that stuff, right? And, like... I think, I think I've never really come up with like an answer of like what would you do with all of that that would have been like a more robust game than what came out because to well, make it more robust would require so much more systems work. Yeah. So that well, maybe like, it doesn't need to be a yeah. game, quote unquote, yeah. right? Like yeah. that's that's maybe well, part of the lesson. Because right? probably a similar game might be everything, right? Which like okay. you might yeah. argue is not a game. Right. It is what it is, right? And yeah. it is a game about everything. Um, uh, I played it actually fairly recently out of curiosity. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Like, this is the kind of game that, like, you could take Scribblenauts and feed it into it, and now it's, like, your screensaver slash exploration toy. Right. Um, uh, it seems like something to make it work would require some sort of sharing aspect. Like, because, you know, you have... You know, you have this, this sandbox. It's like, okay, you can create anything in this environment mm -hmm. and, like, stuff's going to happen. Like, okay, that's kind of interesting. But yeah. where it gets really interesting is you can see, oh, 
and I can show this to my friends, and these you yeah. know high level players will have yeah. their YouTube videos Which and I their think streams. Which the third game was like, trying to do Scribblenauts Ultimate with right. UGC, right? Like you can make your own stuff, and then you can throw it up onto the Steam Workshop, um, and other people can download it. And people did that. Yeah. Um, I don't know quite enough about how that ecosystem worked because, like, I'm off the project. I work too much time on this. Yeah, I don't yeah. want to pay any attention attention to it, right? Um, but I think that was like part of what they were trying to lean into. But I also wonder if it was like. Some of it might have been a little bit too early. Like I think a lot about now when we talk about games as a platform, mm -hmm. right? Um, the sort of things you see with Fortnite, sort of things that you might you even see with like Minecraft with all like the different Minecraft servers and like yeah. people are spinning up their own like types of games and gameplay. Um, is that like Scribblenauts had sort of like the kind of content that you might be able to put into a platformy game yeah. um, where players are creating their own stuff by using essentially the assets, the simulation, the data that already exists, adding their own stuff and then recombining it and putting it into interesting situations. But I don't think the Scribblenaut series that 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 shipped, right, had had the stuff that would have been able to, to do that, right? right? Um, the design wasn't there. Um, the... It wasn't built for that kind of thing, but like I think if you were to do that kind of game now, that would probably be the direction. It'd be like a very like focus on like player creation, player creativity tools, things like that, um, instead of like relying on the developers to provide all the interesting things you can do with these objects. Yeah. It's like no, I, let's let's give you examples of stuff and let you bring bring yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. Did uh, your did your background in adventure games like? Contribute really. to like, okay. Not really. Um, it feels uh, like there's some overlap there, but I think I think I remember. Uh, I I think one of the reasons I was hired was like my English degree background. They're like she knows words, right, right, right. right. Um, and like that was true, right? Being well, very well read and having a high vocabulary, and then working on a game like that was useful. But like, um, it didn't really have. Maybe a little bit, right? Because when we talked about lateral thinking puzzles, right. and I could think a lot about like poor point-and-click adventure game mechanics where it's a lateral thinking point and it's not intuitive. Mm -hmm. um, but in our case, it's like there's not one solution. There needs to be a wide range of solutions. But also those wide range of solutions are subjective. They're culturally encoded. Mm -hmm. How do you actually find them all? So probably a bad choice, right? Like just like thinking back on it, it's like probably wouldn't do lateral thinking. Like lateral thinking puzzles are going to be really hard because they're so subjective and they're yeah. so cultural. Um, not a regret that we did it. Um, just like if I was looking at it now, uh, not having any like, if Scribblenauts didn't exist and it was being pitched now, I think that would be one of my red flags. Um, would be would be trying to do puzzles that way. Um, what would be the right way to do the puzzles? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And that's the thing, right? It's like. Um, I, I might be the kind of person that was like, that would be like, yeah, these are interesting ideas, but I don't see how you're going to make a good game out of this. Good luck. Peace out. Bye. Um, and, and being naive about that is like a boon because that means that game now exists. Right. right? Yeah. I mean, Scribblenauts was cool. People, people liked it. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. like it was, yeah. you know, it's a crazy project. Right. Yeah. So. And it very much, um. It absolutely like wormed its way into my brain and how I think about systems in general and like right. how I work, right? Like that was my that was my first shipped game with Scribblenauts, right? right? And like not very many designers in the industry are like, yeah, the first game I shipped was this extremely weird 
oddball, yeah. systemsy, designy game. Because whatever you need, whatever you try to codify, you know, generalize and codify mm-hmm. in the future is going to be a way simpler problem than the thing you've already done. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's it's so funny because like sometimes someone will be like. No one's ever made a game with X. And I'm like, I have. Right? <laughs> like, it's like, it's like, uh, not right. fun at parties, but like also kind of fun at parties. I'm like, oh yeah, well, guess what? I made a game with that. It's called Scribble Dots. I'm like, just win yeah, yeah, like yeah. the conversation, right? And it's just like, yeah, like all the kinds of situations you could run into. Did I you guys of, did you guys just do like get a digital dictionary and search all the nouns no, or something? No, no, no. I think, I think at one point, uh, Maya, the creative director, did an interview and was like, yeah, we looked through dictionaries. And uh, I'm like, no, I didn't. I describe it as reading Wikipedia for two years. Because again, it wasn't, what wasn't important was that, that the stuff that we encode was accurate. Right. What was important is that is popularly understood as something. It's the thing people are going to think of. And Wikipedia was perfect. And Wikipedia actually has all these category pages. Yeah. Right. Like you can look up categories of intent of utensils, and it's yeah. just like, oh, all these are links to things, but it's also just a list. Right. You know? Would you have stuff like uh, a colander? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. You're like, Jeez. did you have this thing? It's like 15 <laughs> years later, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to say yes to everything you say, with right. the exception of the handful of things that I knew that we didn't put in because right. of like we ESRB yeah. ratings okay. and stuff like that and brand issues. Oh, man. Um, That's a lot of work. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Well, anyway, Scribblehouse <laughs> is cool, so it'd be fun to, it was fun to talk about. But uh, yeah. what? Uh, so did you keep working at Fifth Cell after no. that, or did you... Yeah, so I worked on Scribblenauts and Super Scribblenauts. So I worked on pre-production on the third game. And then I left um, a few months in. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I was like, I've already done Scribblenauts. That's sure. a design space I've already explored. Yeah. There's so much I don't know yet. So um, I actually went to, like, I, I, I applied to Insomniac. Right. Um, and I ended up going there. Um, and for a few different reasons, like one, I was a big fan of their games. Like I remember when I was in grad school, when we we're finishing grad school and we we're preparing for going into the industry, we all had to choose a company to do a mock interview as, oh, okay. right? Wow. Um, yeah. and I chose Insomniac. Right. I was like, cool. cause I want to work in Insomniac cause I love Spyro and Ratchet and Clank. Right. Yeah. Um, and so professors did a mock interview and it was, I did so terrible. <laughs> like that was, I really bombed that interview, that mock interview. Um, and so I was like, I had cold feet. I was like, Oh, I don't think I can apply to Insomniac. I'm going to go to this small company instead. How, how, how do you, how do you, bo- I mean, I just like froze a stupid up. Question, all my answers were it? awful. And okay. like, like the professors told me after Afterwards, you're like, that's not what we expected out of you, right? <laughs> right yeah, yeah. Um, I just like froze up everything, right? Yeah. Just like, and I think it's because it's a mock interview, and I knew the people that I was talking to, and so like, like it's very different from an actual interview. Like right. when I did actual interviews with companies, I think I did fine, huh. you know. Okay. Um, but the mock interview, I was just like, I completely garbled it. So I was like, oh no, nope, not gonna yeah. apply to that company. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was interested in going and working at a bigger, more established company. I wanted to work in triple A or like just like big 3D games, right? Because right. Scribblenauts is a game for the DS uh-huh. um, and the Wii, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, on the second game or the third, I can't remember now. Um, uh, so like it's mobile, it's handheld, there's like... The teams are much leaner. It was very of an indie kind of project. Um, uh, and so I just wanted to know what it was like to work in a designer in a larger team. 
Mm -hmm. Um, and so I applied to Insomniac and, uh, and they hired me. And one of the nice things about that was, besides that, I got to work at Insomniac, who I wanted to work with. And I didn't get to work on any of the projects that I really, I didn't work on a Spyro game because they weren't doing Spyro anymore. And I didn't work on any of the Ratchet and Clank games. Right. Um, uh, but uh, when I worked there at the time, their role of designer mm-hmm. was a generalist. So you were a level designer and a mission designer. And, like, you owned, like, a certain portion of content. Like, I worked on Resistance 3. Um, I worked on, like, the last year of that project. So they had hit Alpha and they had a year to ship. And I took over, like, 40 minutes, a 40-minute level and, like, a 20-minute boss battle and section of a level. And, like, you own everything in it. You talk with the artists and the animators and the programmers and the effects people and the audio people and narrative. You just own that whole section. And so it was a nice opportunity to just get a cross section of like all the kinds of things a designer did. Right. Um, so there's like an hour chunk resistance three. Yeah. That's your chunk. Yeah. Yeah. Your... And like not initially mine cause I inherited it from yeah, someone sure. else. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked on it and improved it and, and, and it was just like a great experience altogether. Um, and, uh, on, on subsequent projects, I was very vocal. It's like, I want to do systems design, right? Mm-hmm. And they don't have a system designer role. So it's like, all right, the next project I got to do the skill trees and like, why did you say you wanted to do a system, be a system designer? Um, so it's funny that you ask me this because our, our, our design director, right. Mm-hmm. Of the department was also like, so what's a system? And I'm like, oh, I'll have <laughs> to get back system? to you. Right. And we had so many conversations like, what's a system and what's a mechanic? And I don't think any of my answers were very good. Right. It was hard to, it's like, you know it when you see it, mm-hmm. but like when I thought of systems, like one of the things that I didn't know going into insomniac and I know now, and I know that like, Insomniac was great at that point of my career. I got really good at being a designer. Mm -hmm. Um, But Insomniac's like key things that they're like their identity um, and things that they're good at doing and that they're very critical about and are uh, combat Mm -hmm. and traversal. Okay. And yep. those are very three C's. They're very like moment to moment. What's three C's? um, Yeah, sorry. uh, Three C's like common at Ubisoft term. We didn't actually use the term at Insomniac. Um, camera, character, and controls. Okay. Right? So That's the elements. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, like, game feel. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, balancing and crunchiness and, like, you know, the tuning of a shotgun. Mm-hmm. Not things that I'm good at and not things that I'm, like... Like, I'm, I'm fine at designing combat encounters in level design, right? Like, mm-hmm. but what my what my best work is is nowhere near the best work of people who are really good at it, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, at some point I got limited at Insomniac because the things that I really wanted to work on were systems, but they're different kinds of systems, not combat systems, not traversal systems, things like progression, things like... Um, I got to do a lot of this work finally when... Uh, so I worked on Resistance 3, I worked on Fuse, which not a lot of people played. That was a uh, third-person cover shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I got to do like skill tree and progression stuff on that and a lot of economy balance and XP and stuff like that. Um, but then we worked on Sunset Overdrive. Right. And that was their first 
open world game. And I had been vocal enough that I want to be a systems designer. They were like, all right, Liz, you are our systems designer. <laughs> now we had another one as well, right? We had, we had Mike Burkhead. He was a, he was a systems designer that took over a lot of economy balancing and it took over a lot of the multiplayer systems. Um, and then I took over most of the like single player systems for an open world game. But a lot of times what came up was like, like to get to your, like why systems, right? Like, when I was like, I'm the systems designer, so what do I work on? Well, whatever other people are not working on. Right. Right? So it's not the missions. Yeah. Right? It's not level design. It's not combat. It's what else? Right? And so, like, at one point, I just called it the orphanage. Right? It was all the other things that were in between. So a lot of them were just, like, I did fast travel, and I did how collectibles worked, and I did, like... Every single checkpoint placed in the open world was placed by me by hand so that you, here's your respawn points. Right. Um, Make sure uh, they're consistent across yeah, the game. Yeah, they're consistent. Here are the requirements of it. And, like, it's not, it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with a mission. It doesn't have anything to do with combat. It doesn't have anything to do with traversal or level design. So it fell outside of those areas. So then it fell essentially to me. Um, and just things like, um, uh, it was our first open world game too, right? So we're like, there's a lot of like discovering stuff for the first time that other people who had worked on open world games and like they they leaned a lot on the things that we learned from Sunset Overdrive when they went and made Spider-Man, which I did not work on, right? I right. left before they worked on that. Um, but it was things like you have all these different missions that are that you get from like a quest hub with a bunch of NPCs in it. But no one owned the quest hub yeah. or the NPCs. Right. You just own the missions that go off of it. So I took over the quest hubs, right? right? So it's just like these sort of interstitial in-between spaces um, that was almost like, uh, I, I like to describe a lot of it as like infrastructure. Right. right? So you, you described what it was. Yes. But why did you want to do that? It's so much more interesting. I don't know. Um, I like... So, so one thing that came up like on future projects, right, is that I've, I've described my work as like, my work ends where gameplay starts. I'm really interested in underlying systems that uh, maybe support or prop up sort of like the experience, broadly speaking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not so interested in working on tailored um, experiences or authored experiences. Right. I'm interested in like, as I'm playing the game, I will be intersecting with the system, right? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, it's. I've always had difficulty in describing this, right? Like, over time, some of the words I've used have been like, I like infrastructure. I like um, those sort of interstitial spaces between like chunks of uh, of content that just sort of like make. A world feel alive. Mm -hmm. um, I love simulation. So like simulation is one of the terms that I lean on a lot to sort of describe the kinds of systems work that I like. Um, it's sort of like I'm interested in the relationships between objects or between mechanics or between like when I think about systems, I think about relationships and I don't think too much about like the balance of those relationships. So I don't really like economy design anymore, although I've done it and it's kind of interesting. So like balancing, um, balancing numbers in a spreadsheet to make sure it's balanced. Not quite so interesting to me anymore. What is interesting to me are things like we create a system called fire. And so here are all the ways that fire can now intersect with another system called wood. 
right? right. Setting things on fire, right? Um, and start looking at so those relationships and those connections and sort of like creating opportunities for players to now use this sort of like leverage this however they want to or for other designers on the team to leverage this however they want to in terms of like, in this mission, you're going to set fire to all the wooden objects. I'm going to use fire as an example because it's just such a, it's, it's an it's, obvious system yeah. and I've done it. On it's the, hard for me still not to think a little bit of scribble dots. That like yes. You're, you're yeah. still in this mindset of like trying to generalize stuff so it'll, yeah. it'll play out through the whole game. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's a tool and it's not like, like when I think about systems these days, I don't, I don't think about balance, balancing systems. I actually don't like balancing, right? right. Um, I use air quotes, which no one can see but you. But um, <laughs> I, I don't really, I'm not interested in balance systems. Um, I'm interested in systems that create a interesting experience. Yeah. Um, that I can then, that a player can then say, let me tell you the story this is of the, thing the game that to I me. played. It feels really unique to me because yes. I didn't necessarily expect it. So yeah, and like, um, and and like a lot of this thought that I've had has been like, like I helped formulate sort of like my my a better concept of like what I love when I worked on Watchdogs Legion and I worked on that for about five years. Now it's all procedural generation, it's simulation, it's also narrative work, um, and the kinds of stuff that I find myself drawn to are like. I call them I stories in games, mm -hmm. right? Like a player talks about, when you ask a player talking about, tell me, you know, tell me the story of this game or tell me what it was like playing this game. And like, they could tell you the story that was like written, right? Like the author's story. They may also just say, you know, and I, you know, mm -hmm. uh, did X and therefore this happened and then I did this and then, and they're describing a story. They're still describing a story, but their story is, a set of systems that they collided with through play or they manipulated with through play. And there's a set of cause and effect that created its own unique story that they can then take and then tell the other people. And because other people have played that game and they understand the systems of that game, they can now see and be like, oh, I could also tell that right. story, mm -hmm. right? Or I told a version of the story, but it went differently because of how I interacted with that system. And I find those like, like, I am, we've talked so much about game systems, but like for me, narrative and systems are essentially the same thing. And it's because I'm talking about those I stories, the, the narrative of, you know, me telling the experience of like, so like Sea of Thieves is an example of like what I consider like one of the better, like one of the best games that kind of like combines gameplay systems and narrative systems together is because the stories people tell of playing Sea of Thieves are stories of pirates or being a pirate, mm -hmm. right? Or the risk and reward of trusting other people that are pirates on the high seas or stealing loot and things like that. So you're telling pirate stories while you're describing the gameplay mechanics mm -hmm. through the systems and the systems tell stories of being pirates. Right, systems um, support the narrative of the game. Yes, right? yeah, and there's no, there's no real, there's no real like dividing line between, well, here's the narrative part of the game and here's the systems part of the game. Yeah. Now there's, there is some like narrative, like more custom narrative, like adventure things that are layered on, yeah. but like you can't really separate the narrative yeah. and the gameplay from that game. It's funny how sometimes there, there's obviously a lot of times when people have made a narrative and the gameplay is a hard time supporting it. Yes. Um, and it's sometimes funny because it seems like the best answer is just to cheat. In the sense that, like, if you make a game about pirates, like, yeah. well, pirates are not trustworthy. Yeah. And they're going to do whatever they want. Yeah. And generally speaking, if people 
if people, I don't know, uh, 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 I'm blanking on the obvious word, uh, grief you, or, you know, just like, yeah. well, they're a pirate. Like, yes. you know, what do you expect? Yes. So, um, yeah. like, you know, like, eh, so they, they kind of like find a neat way around that problem. Yeah, they do. They do. And it's, it's, it's interesting too, right? Cause like, I've, I've spent a bunch of time reading like player stories about like Sea of Thieves. Cause I, I really have played a ton of Sea of Thieves. It was one yeah. of my pandemic games with friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And you often run into this sort of like uh, a little bit of friction, right? Yeah. Between players who were like, we were griefed by these other players, right? And that felt unfair and that was not fun. And other people were like, well, you're playing a game where you're pirates, right? <laughs> and it's like, there's a friction going on of people who understand what the fantasy is and people who have not fully bought into and accept the fantasy of, well, they're pirates, no one's trustworthy. Yeah. And yes, you might have an alliance, but anytime they can turn around, they will. Right, nine times out of ten, they'll turn around and betray you. Um, and like, there are people who don't want to play that part of the pirate fantasy, but want all the other parts of the pirate fantasy. Yeah, and it's just sort it's, of like interesting to tricky. see that sort of friction. But like, I still think it's one of the most successful games that yeah, yeah, that yeah. that sells an experience and a fantasy and then lives up to it. Yep. Yeah. Um, like I, whenever you talk about this, whenever I talk about this type of issue, like I usually bring up like uh, the board game diplomacy, right? Because mm-hmm. it's such just this is perfect marriage yeah. of like, you know, you want the you want a certain type of game mechanic, and then you find the perfect you know narrative yeah. to match it, right? Yeah. Like it seems like that's that's generally kind of like the well, I don't know. I mean, this this is a very old design question, mm-hmm. right? You start with it. You used to start with the, the the thing that the game is supposed to be about, yeah, and then figure out what mechanics go with it, or you go the other way around. Um, yeah, and like, it's it's hard for me to answer that, right? Because professionally, I am a designer that works on other people's projects, right? right. I'm not You've a never creative got director. To decide at the beginning. That, no, that I mean, I have on side projects, right? right? I've done lots of like little side projects, lots of narrative projects, but it was like, um, as a non-programmer and also just someone who's really interested in narrative and wanting to do something different than I do at work. Like most of my side projects have been like pure narrative works and it's like, cool, I don't have to figure out how to end the story. I can just write all the endings and let the player figure it out, right? right. So that's that doesn't even answer that. Um, what I find myself leaning towards often is starting with what experience you want a player to have. Mm-hmm. And that's like, like, See if these the example is like the pirate experience and then just feeding everything into that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's both like defining what that experience needs to be informs both gameplay and narrative, right? right. Um, what is the fantasy of this game? And it doesn't always have to be like empowerment fantasies, right? Like I love, we've talked about this before, but like I love horror. So I'm always really interested in like what is good horror gameplay is not about empowering a player, it's about disempowering a player, Mm -hmm. right? And so, like, to get the experience of fear, you need to give player a little bit of power and then you need to, like, remove it, right? Like, Alien Isolation does this so extremely well um, with, with, you know, being hunted by an alien and then you get a tool and then the alien flees and then slowly but surely the alien's not so scared of it anymore and then it's Mm -hmm. like, now you're being disempowered again. And so they have, like, this really good... um, uh, really good synergy. I hate that word, but we're going to use it anyway. But like synergy between like the feel you want players to have and the mechanics that you developed to make sure the players are feeling that way. Um, it, it's it's like I don't consider myself a game feel designer, 
right? right? Because the moment-to-moment game feel is not like my expertise, right? Like the kind of tuning is not. But the feel that you get from the kinds of verbs, the kinds of actions you have, what you are or are not able to do within a system, um, and the kinds of stories that like when you build out systems, what is a player able to do and what do you like what do you make it easy for a player to do? What do you make it difficult for players to do? And what do you say players are not, not able to accomplish this? Tells you a lot about what kinds of stories that game will allow you to then tell um, through those systems. Right. Yeah. Um, so getting back to to like, you know, you want to be a system designer mm-hmm. on, on Sunset, Sunset, like it, it, it was it a little bit that you know, most of the designers were sort of building out content, yeah, you know, like areas, stuff to be consumed, yeah. stuff that could be, you know, they probably had a specific idea of what they wanted the player mm-hmm. to do. Presumably, you were kind of at a, if you're doing the stuff between it all, yeah, you're a little bit at a higher level. So, right? yeah, so I liked being able to, and I still do like being able to flex really high between low level details, like where does every respawn point exist within mm-hmm. like the open world on Sunset Overdrive to the high level of, all right, I know that you've unlocked like, like a kind of high level thing that I love to do was to be like, all right, here are all the weapons in the game. Mm-hmm. And here's when you can get them. And the earliest you can get all of them. This is like balancing a bit, but I'm not tuning particular numbers because what makes a weapon cool or not is a subjective thing, right? right. It's not it's like, more like pacing, a number. Right. It's pacing, yeah, pacing and progression. Like when I worked on Sunset, like one of the th- one of the Excel sheets that I made was like, I don't remember what it was called, but it was basically a list of everything. It was like every quest, every challenge, every item, every vanity item, just like every gun, every unlock that you could have, and then put into a spreadsheet so we could start saying in snapshot mode, like when a player has gotten to this point in the game, what did they unlock? What could they have unlocked? What was that sort of like possibility space of what they now had access to? And being able to pace that over time. I wasn't necessarily the decision driver in a lot of that, but I had all the information so that I could help inform decisions so that when people were like, we need to move, we need to move this unlock much earlier in the game, right? right? We need to be able to have like this kind of traversal move earlier on. It's like, okay, that is now unlocked at the same time as these other three giant things and you don't want to train them all at the same time. So like proposal for how to move those things around. So a lot of it was like, yeah, high level progression stuff, but very much rooted in very detail specifics, like of what exactly was getting unlocked when, um, how, how were we doling out rewards? Um, what kind of, what kind of behaviors were we rewarding with our rewards and like, were they cool enough and were they like the, like what you would expect and like narratively appropriate for the actions that you were doing? Um, Lots of stuff like that. And like things like fast travel, for example, is like, yeah, you unlock fast travel over time. It's a progression mechanic. So, and it's not part of like content authoring. So it fell to me, but like it was very much tied to, all right, has a player's, have players reached this part of the game? Have they hit these sort of milestones? Right. Um, So you were trying to create a cohesive gameplay experience for the player. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's sort of like, in a lot of ways, I just describe them as support systems because, like, fast travel and collectibles and, like, spawn mm-hmm. points are not, like, they're not, like, the sexy parts of 
game design, right? right. Um, uh, the core parts were like the people who actually designed the traversal for Sunset Overdrive or designed a lot of the enemy in uh, combat um, or designed like open world encounters with, you know, like the different zombies and stuff like that. And I didn't work on that. I worked on stuff that supported all that, right? The in-between yeah. stuff. Um, yeah. I like I like organizing things. Yeah. Like scribble dots, clearly. Like, yeah. I loved it. Cause it's like, <laughs> I get to organize everything in the known universe. Give me a spreadsheet. I was super happy doing that, right? In the, the 19th century, would you be one of those botanists who was yeah. like... <laughs> I almost became a librarian, right? Like, okay. like when I, right. you know, like, I looked at alternative roles and jobs, and I learned that, like, actually library science was, like, probably not going to pay very well. Right. Um, but, like, that was, like, I could... I mean, I worked in, like, libraries yep. throughout college and, like, yeah, organizing and sorting data. Love it. Right. Wow. Love it. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Maybe that's why I like systems design. Sure. It's just, like, yeah, yeah. I get to organize. Trying to get everything in the right place. Because I love spreadsheets, but it's, like, it's not really the math part of spreadsheets that I love. That's cool. That's it's cool. It's the right organizing place. stuff yeah. and organizing information in a way that you can now make decisions off of that information. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you are in many ways also enabling a lot of other designers, presumably, to make good decisions for themselves. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. I hope they right. would say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what did you learn, like you know, th you know, once you finished with Sunset Overdrive, like what did it, what did it teach you? Like what, what did you feel like you did really well, and what did you feel like you could have, you would have tried to do better, like next oh, time in a tough position? Uh, oh, those are good. Um, you know. Uh, because there's design answers to this and there's also just like process and like being a team member and making games kind of answer, sure. right? Um, and like as a designer, I learned a lot about like, like just like how to organize that kind of information and like how to make good, like what kind of information you need to to collect to make good decision making off of that information. Like that's like in a very general way, right? Um, and then I just like, I learned a lot about like open world systems, open world combat, just like a lot of stuff that I didn't know much about, but we were also kind of like learning from scratch ourselves. Um, so that's just like on the design side that I learned. But like, I think actually a lot of the things that I learned on Sense of Overdrive, beyond just like practicing what it means to make an open world game was like, things that I had trouble with and I was trying to unpack by that time in my career, because I was probably like seven or eight years into games mm -hmm. around then, was like, when do you say no to someone? Right. Right. And when is it too early? Because I'm a very scope conscious person. I like I like drawing the lines of the box and then filling it with a ton of stuff, but I like to know where, where my constraints are. Uh -huh. um, I tend to be very very scope conscious because I've worked on big sprawling systems. It's like, well, we'll just add this one thing. And it's like, okay, I understand what that combinatorial explosion means when you make that one change and now the amount of upkeep that requires. Um, and uh, at the time, like I had a lot of trouble communicating like what some of that upkeep looked like, right? And uh, I was also nervous about saying no to people too early because I wanted people to be able to feel like like, I'm a bad person in brainstorms because mm -hmm. I'm just like, oh, that's an unrealistic. That's yeah. a bad idea. That's a bad idea. That doesn't fit the game. So I yeah. just, like, I keep quiet in brainstorms. And so, like, I don't want to shut other people's design ideas down, especially if they might actually be really good ideas just because, like, I can be – I hate to – I don't think I'm a conservative designer, but, like, there's an element of that that comes out of, like, brainstorming. So I was trying to balance that up against, like – 
you have a cool idea, but I'm just seeing all these flaws right. with like how this is going to cause us problems. And it did cause us problems long term. And trying to figure out when and how and right. like. All right. So when when should you say no to someone? <laughs> um, so I think one of the things that I learned. So I learned that this was like an area that I had trouble with. And on my follow up project, I got much better at like actually figuring out not just when to say no, but how to say no. Sure. Um, that didn't always go perfectly, but it was like, like I said before, it's hard to explain like the, the fallout of a particular decision. I got really good at explaining in great detail the fallout of a particular decision. Right. Um, and like being able to articulate that to people and say, okay, if you want this, here is what happens. So I could say no, but the conversation doesn't end with no. And it also doesn't leave people frustrated being like, well, Liz says this is a bad idea, but didn't explain why. Right. I got real good at explaining why. And in probably too much, like the number of times on my follow-up project where people are like, no, it's okay, Liz, we don't need any more detail. I got it. I understand why you said no. We're right. good. Or right. why we said yes, right? right? I mean, I use no as an example because it's like more of the like contentious like situation of like, no, we're not going to do that. I mean, you know? ideally, if you explain, if, if it's a good explanation or it yeah. could happen, like it could lean to, okay, okay. It's not a question of do we do A or not yeah. A. You could end up doing B because yes. the discussion yeah. leads somewhere. Yes. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And like being able to articulate it was something that I needed more time and experience to learn how to do. Um, so, so, yeah, like that was like, like it's less about like when to say no and it's more about how. And also like I have a better... I think now, like, I think this is probably common with everyone. Like, as you, as you, as you tack on years of experience, right? Um, I have a better understanding of like stakeholder needs in other departments mm -hmm. um, and knock-on effects that a choice that we can make in design will affect another team, right? right. And also, when I get that inkling. I have like, I know now to go reach out to them and talk with them and find out the answers to things. Um, I am definitely someone that does not like to make decisions unless I have as much information as possible, which makes I'm very, tend to be very proactive in finding out as much information as possible. I also tend to be very open and just give everybody 150% of the information that they wanted, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I will just tell everyone as much transparency as possible because if somebody wants the technical details, right? If someone in QA wants the technical details about how something's implemented or even why a decision was made, right? Like there's no, I have no reason not to tell every someone as much information as possible because the more information people have, the better, the better tool they have for making good decisions um, because I need a lot of that information for decision-making. So, uh, so yeah, that's kind of like, kind of very, I don't know if that was roundabout way or, or it continues to make sense, but like, like as a designer, a lot of my design methodology is actually about how to communicate mm -hmm. and communication processes and like as like a form of collaboration with other people, right? Because you can't do anything by yourself. And also if you try to do stuff by yourself, you end up into roadblocks because people don't understand why you want to do things a certain way. And right. so to unblock those roadblocks is to get, you know, buy-in from other people, which means that, like, 
you need to be able to listen to people. You need to be able to explain things to people, like right? It's like a two-way street. Like I'm talking a lot about how I can communicate to others, but it's also like sitting down with, I dealt with this a lot on our, on our, like I've alluded to Watch Dogs Legion a number of times, but right. like it was a very difficult project in part because like a lot of people were doing procedural generation for the first time that I'd never had before. And yeah. so like it could be very disruptive to like establish pipelines, establish workflows, like how does an artist evaluate their work if they can't actually see the end product, they can only see the parts that go into it. So a lot of the work that I did on that project actually wasn't even stuff that you would normally consider design, but it's just like sit down and be like, all right, what's the problem mm -hmm. that my system is causing you? Right. What are the things that my system or our system or the other systems in the game cause you like uh, either disruption to your work or concern or you're worried that this is going to like create a lot of work like what are the problems and being able to listen to those and then like all right let's make actionable changes to it so that like design design will only be able to like i guess you could say the design flourishes when other people buy into it and other people are going to support it mm -hmm. and so you need to collect that sort of support um but you have to earn it right right um yeah I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's interesting here because I, I've just I've worked on much smaller teams, yeah. you know, so I haven't I haven't had essentially to develop these mm -hmm. skills, and it is a skill, yeah. right? And it probably just took time to yeah. learn how to do, yeah, right? Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I'm also the other thing that popped in my head is that I think a, a really hard one is and something I, I've had to try to really. Uh, think through is that some you know there's yet you know like yes that's a good idea we should do that that's simple like no we, we yeah. really should not do that which is then you have to like yeah you, know, yeah you have to talk through and lead to things but there are also other times when it's like sometimes it's important to like say i'm we're actively we should actively not make a decision right now yeah right because yeah. We, we don't know what the right answer is yeah. and it's it's not necessarily the right time mm -hmm. to make this decision or you know i I have a stopgap answer to this, but I don't trust that it's the right decision yes. right now. And sometimes we just have to wait. Yeah. And uh, I, I worked on projects that generally have really long timelines. So I think maybe that's comes from my own perspective of having that freedom, which is nice. Mm -hmm. And you don't always have that, right? Which is tough. But at yeah. Any rate, I think it's it's important to think like that. It is actively like a third option, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like like I had a um I had a lead at Insomniac, Drew Murray, that I learned a lot from just watching because like. Like when I think about like good design leadership, I always think about him. Um, and because like you could bring an issue to him and he would be like, all right, I need to think about it. Right. Right. A lot of other people are like, you bring a problem to someone and they want to solve it immediately. Like I always want to solve problems immediately. I was like, oh no, this is a problem that needs to be solved. Um, and like he taught me like the value of being like, no, this is something I need to think about. We don't right. need a decision right now. We need to consider it and then make a decision and then have all the reasons behind yeah. that decision. Um, things that I've been like, like, like on like more recent role where I'm in more of a director position, I'm in more of an opportunity to say, yes, you're right. These are things that are, are not known. But in order to know, like in order to like answer some of these design questions, there's other stuff we need to know first and being able to map that out yep. for people. And so like, that's kind of like the way I answer like deferred decision-making. Um, is by saying, here's what we need to know first yeah. before we can make enough information. Yeah, here's our you know? path. And I like to emphasize that, like, 
you know, I'm deciding to wait on this, but I fully acknowledge the thing you're bringing yes. up is a problem. I am yes. not at all happy with the way it currently works. Yes. And sometimes you need to remind people yeah. of that a few times. Like, I'm still not happy. Just because nothing has changed for a month doesn't mm-hmm. mean I think what's going on is okay. Yeah. yeah. And, like, it's it, it it's hard. And that's why I have a hard time imagining working on 100-plus person teams because it feels like, you know, I, I can keep track of, like, the five or six people in design yeah. that I work with. I'm like, okay, okay making sure each, sure each of them yeah. know that like the, the, the naval transport thing I'm not okay with. And like, we'll, we'll get to yeah. that eventually. But when you have like a hundred people yeah. like that just, or plus 600 yeah. people or whatever, it just seems like a huge challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when I went, so when I left Insomniac and joined Ubisoft, I've, I've joked before that one of the reasons I went there was because I wanted to see how the sausage was made. Yeah, right. right. Like it is, if I'm going to continue to go into triple a, and like Insomniac still pretty was a lean team even at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know that it's necessarily that lean uh, anymore, but like it was fairly lean for Triple A. And I was like, well, I want to know what big Triple A, so I might as well go to the biggest one. Sure. Um, and I will say that like a lot of stuff that I learned was like how to navigate team and pr- how to implement process and what it means when your design, you know. Um, has such a ripple impact on how other teams work um, and like trying to do that well and to follow up on like communication and follow up and say, oh, okay, now we need to create a process for this brand new tool and pipeline and there are no established processes. So let me help and sit down with the producers about here's the process for how we can start building content for this. Um, it's just like a very different kind of problem solving, but like, I'm so glad I had that experience because like, like it's almost like, I don't want to say it was like the deep end version of that experience. It's just like the, the, one of the hard parts about working on an Ubisoft project because of the size of the teams is coordination. Yeah. Um, and so you learn, or at least I did, like, I think I learned to be really good at coordination. Um, and, uh, and that's like, won't ever leave me in terms of like being a designer. Right. Mm-hmm. And was like incidentally something I needed without realizing it at the time. Like I told you, like at sunset overdrive, like when do I say one? No, when do I not say no? And that was like a thing that I had identified as like, I don't know. I don't know how to navigate that yet, but I know that's something that I need to learn. And I learned that when I went to Ubisoft because of the teens, because of the way like we had to navigate so many people on a project and different stakeholders and people in different cities and in different time zones. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So you um, you went on to Ubisoft. Yeah. Um, did you know you were going to work on Clint's team? Like, did you know yeah, Clint? Yeah, yeah. So I was looking for, <laughs> I had just, I think I had just rewritten my resume, like, the week before, and then Clint emailed me. Okay. Um, and I was like, well, that's convenient. Like, what good timing. Like, mm-hmm. I hadn't even applied to anywhere yet. Right. I hadn't even come up with, like, a short list of places that I wanted to work. But I had kind of come up with, like, this sort of, like, long-term plan of stuff that I wanted to work on um, and kinds of, like, areas of design that I was interested in. And one of them was, like, potentially working at a much larger AAA company. So Clint had joined Ubisoft and it was like just after they announced that he had come back to Ubisoft, yep. right? Which was a big deal. Um, and then I think he sent out a, like a bunch of his emails to start recruiting people onto the team, yeah, right? How did, how did you know Clint? 
Um, I knew him from GDC because he had mentored one of my tops oh, nice. one year. Wow, um, that's cool. We should maybe mention to the the, the, the listeners we are actually at yes. the GDC Advisory Board Summit yeah. now, where Liz is going to be the mentor I for mentor other people's other talks. talks. That's yeah. very cool. It was funny too because I think like like. I don't know how accurate this is or just is just how like my memory has formed it into, right? But I remember like I had sent in a GDC talk uh, from Sunset Overdrive actually, right? It was like transitioning from linear to open world development on that team. Okay. Um, and I remember getting the confirmation back that it's been accepted to the next phase. Yep. And that Clint on the advisory board was set up as my mentor. Then he emailed me and I don't remember exactly what he said, but the impression I got was... <laughs> I wanted to take your talk because I disagree with everything in it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that sounds good. That I think sounds it was like, like we did it the opposite of the way he knows how to make open world games, right? right? right. Um, and so I was like, okay. And he made me do a bunch of work and mentored the talk. And I gave the talk. And apparently it wasn't terrible because like a year later he was like, hey, I'm starting up a new team. And maybe you want a job like he wasn't offering the job yep, he was yep, like was you know we're out. starting up a new team and and i chatted with him i chatted with him on the phone and he gave me a little bit of a like a background of like what he wanted to do with like watchdogs 3 at the time um which was like an idea of like all the npcs all the characters were like important right uh -huh. um and a concept of like they could like a much more heavily simulated world, like the concept of upresing a character's AI from like a sort of like uh, like all the background characters, all the background could characters could suddenly become like could suddenly main... become upres in terms of like their AI more complicated and stuff like that. I was yeah. like, oh yeah, all that stuff's real interesting to me. Right. Um, so I might as well talk to them. Yeah. Um, and I did talk to them, but I still didn't actually know what systems I'd be working on. And I remember during interviews, someone else was like, well, we're not sure we're actually going to do that system. We'll, we'll see whether or not we do that. <laughs> Clint but likes it, to talk about that. But... Yeah, it was a little bit like that, right? It's like, I don't know that that's really going to happen. That's just, that's an idea, right? Right. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, I interviewed with them and I accepted the job for, for a game design role and then I started on the project and I was like so what am I going to be working on and they gave me some acronym and I was like so what's that it's like haha funny you should ask that um and it was everything involved with those NPCs as well as like narrative tools in order to support that um so uh basically assigned me like you know procedurally generating characters that could like be simulated in an open world um, that could become main characters of your story. Uh, and that was the system that I was handed to without knowing that that was the system I was going to be handed to. Like procedural generation, I don't think was a word that had come up in any discussions I had with them. Mm -hmm. Narrative didn't really come up, but I love narrative. And like before I accepted that job, like I had mapped out in my mind and I was like, I want to do stuff with procedural generation and I want to do stuff with narrative. But I'm not in a position coming from like Sunset Overdrive or Insomniac to be able to do that work yet. I don't have a background in that. Um, uh, so it's funny, like I ended up taking the job at Ubisoft and immediately handed that, right? Mm -hmm. um, in, in the meantime, I remember one time another developer on, on, uh, on an, another company asked like, how did you 
how did you get to be the point where you got to be the designer on this play as anyone pillar with procedural generation and simulation and all that sort of stuff and creating new narrative tools to explain to them how this worked. And I said, well, first step is have no prior experience in any of that. <laughs> right. And, and that's true. It's like, I didn't have any prior experience in any of that stuff, but I don't think that many people really no did one, yeah. um, or, or like, still does. Right. Maybe someone from the Crusader Kings team. I don't yeah, know. Right. Yeah. Like it's pretty rare. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, so, so a lot of the work that I ended up doing, and I, I was at Ubisoft for five years, um, was like procedurally generated characters, simulated simulations in the world. But also when I talk about narrative tools, like it's kind of like the, the hidden other half of the work. It's just not like, it's not player sent, it's not player facing, it's developer tools. It's like when you're writing, when you're writing, say, uh, a, uh, cinematic, right? We'll say it's a cinematic. There's all kinds of different narrative moments in a game, but you don't know who's going to be in the cinematic because you can change out like what they look like, all the procedural generation, like your your height might be different, your gender might be different, but it's also your voice is different. Mm -hmm. um, and we weren't just doing like the same script recorded with different voice actors. We wanted different scripts for different kinds of personalities, right? Okay. So like... If someone came from a like uh, low class, you know, inner city background, the way they talk and their mannerisms are actually quite distinctly different than like someone from like a different part of society. Sure. Um, and and very different from someone who's an immigrant from another part of the world. Um, and we wanted to capture that with like different kinds of personas, right? And not like the usability types of personas, just like the ways in which. Um, we wanted to represent like types of people and how they act and how they react and the kinds of words they use and how they deliver those words. So instead of a like mission where you write the script for the main character, it's like you write the script for one of 20 main characters and then you write the other 20 variations. So it's like the narrative tools we built were actually for creating sort of like that sort of like being able to preview and write that matrix, right? Okay. What so, does it look like when... So every line of dialogue, you'd have to write like 20 times? 20 different variations of it, depending on who who's talking and what kind of like personality had um, and, and how they would deliver their words. Yeah. And that got recorded 20 times? Yeah. This was voiceover? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and there, there's various ways scope-wise <laughs> to, to, to like constrain some of that. Okay. But like, like broadly speaking, yeah, there was like you like... In a normal game, if you're like, ah, oh, yeah, we, you know, we did 5,000 lines of dialogue to cover our missions. I'm like, okay, multiply that by 20. Mm. It's like extremely expensive. It's, it's a ton of work. We built out a huge narrative team. We hired narrative, like, I think, I think at, at Ubisoft Toronto, but I can't say for sure there were no narrative designers. There might have been on at least one other project. And on our team, I think we hired up to four. So, like, we built out like writing team, narrative design to try to deal with a lot of the complexity of this and like organizational challenges and then just implementation challenges. Um, because as a writer, you don't know who's talking to who, right? right? Um, and those lines need to be interchangeable, right? Um, we need to be able to swap out characters. And then also as a writer, you need to know what it's like for this type of character to talk to this type of character and then see that as a flat script right. and then swap out a character would and the, see a different set of lines would talking. The, would the tree or the, the form of the script change or is it just swapping the, um, the phrases? Um, the yes and no. Um, 
for the most part, the form of it didn't change. Um, I'm trying to figure out like a good way of describing it. Like early on during pre-production, like during prototyping and pre-production, we actually created a very robust tool that allowed for procedurally generated like cinematics, essentially a narrative, right? Okay. We could put in all kinds of variables. We could like, like it's just like, it was extremely robust depending on like what we needed to serve. And we we're trying to try to figure out a way of like, how you do a mission brief when it's not just who's talking, but like there's all different other kinds of variables you can take into account, right? Um, a model for that was like in Mafia 3, mm -hmm. um, if you played that, there's a whole situation where like your character is in a room with the other gang bosses and okay. they're all making arguments for like, you should do this next. No, you should do this. We have like attitudes and opinions and, and taking that into account. So we explored some of that. Um, Scope-wise, it didn't fit. And also it just didn't fit with a lot of the other design. But we created a tool that would allow for it should we want to flex into that. So, and, and then we add on top of that, not only could you do like highly branching sort of mission dialogue or just dialogue in general with all the different voices, but like it was a tool that also allowed for not just text, but voice acting. And so it had audio files associated with it and localization to other languages. So mm -hmm. the tool was needed to be also like, if you do branching, what branching in French might look different than English and it might look very different in like Arabic, right? right. Like what does that look like? And what does it look like to like translate um, almost a script, right? So like the narrative tools we made, um, I think are more robust in terms of like the flexibility of what they could do than what we use them for, sure. which is fine. Cause it's like, we weren't entirely sure how we wanted what to use them, right. but like a huge portion of my work was actually like helping to create those narrative tools that writers had to use, um, had to use as a, as a <laughs> particular form of sometimes, phrase. Sometimes to tools fair, are like that. Yeah. Oh. So, so to be fair, I've talked to some of the writers and then been like, Oh, I missed that tool. And yeah. I'm like, oh, that means it wasn't really that bad. Like, because <laughs> yeah. I guess the, the bar is really low, actually, for writing tools. It's real hard to get good writing tools because it's just exactly. writing tools can tend break the, the flow of writing. Yes. And I'm not a writer, right? So it's like, there's a bit of like, I hope, I hope I did a fine job, but you're the ones who actually have to suffer through whatever I, yeah. I helped spearhead, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, um, we had that problem with events in Old World. Like, yeah. we have a, a, like an event writer, but you know, it often refreshes wrong and mm -hmm. stuff gets lost and whatever. So it's, it's kind of good for setting up events, but when you actually just yeah. want to like, I just want to change some text. Yes. It's, you just open up yeah. an XML file and yeah. yep. <laughs> bang yep. it out. Yep. Right. Like, yeah. It's, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's hard to get, yeah. It's hard to get into the writing flow with good writing tools. Yeah. Um, and then we definitely didn't solve that. Like that was a difficult tool to put anyone in front of, but I think also just tools in general are really hard on writers in our industry. Yeah. I mean, at the um, end of the day, like, you know, a good, something's only going to become good if there's like a business case for it becoming good. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> there's yeah, just yeah, yeah. not really yeah. that yeah. much of a business case for it because yeah. it's never going to be given to a consumer. Mm -hmm. At least not like as, yeah. you know, unless yeah. it's like a modding tool or whatever. Right. But even right, then, right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So, so that was a huge portion of my role. And then and part of that role also was like, I'm the master of line counts, right? Because mm -hmm. it's like, what is the limiting factor of this game is like cost-wise? And it's like, well, how many lines of dialogue can we afford and localize? But also like, 
there was a point on the project where our audio team was like, they could have schedule and a spot on that schedule was the event horizon. Like <laughs> anything correct. that was written and recorded after this point like, just couldn't make it into the game. The game yeah. And I remember even at one point we had the conversation of like, yeah, we can't have that many lines because we can't fit it on disc. And I'm like, that's wow. not a conversation I expect to have in like the year this 2018 year. or whatever, yeah. you know, wow. um, just because of the amount that it would require. And so like a lot of logistics. And so like a lot of other work I did was just like how to constrain the scope so that like it would fit within the boundaries of time and space, right? To mm -hmm. ship, right? Uh, and it's an interesting challenge, but probably not a challenge that a lot of people would be interested in doing, right? Like I had some fantastic spreadsheets, I will say. Like, <laughs> like I could calculate everything and it was pretty, I was pretty on target with how much like, how many lines it would cost to do new kinds of systems. Um, the estimations were actually surprisingly good. Right. Um, and kept up to date uh, so that we always knew like because it wasn't just about like costs. It was also like we only have so many writers. Right. There's only so many people that can do like voice recording sessions. Right. So it's like all these are not really design considerations, but they're process considerations that feed back into the design. So like to do a good design, you have to take into account all these kinds of pipeline and process and like how do you get that content into the game uh, and taking into account all of it so that your system doesn't fall down because you asked for too much because you were, you know, this is, this goes into like both loving to organize things, but also like I want to know all the answers so I can make good decisions. So right. it's like in order to make this sort of stuff work, I had to like babysit like how much stuff was costing and how much content we were requiring people to make. Uh, so that it wasn't unreasonable, and that we wouldn't we wouldn't down go down a path and then find out that that was completely unshippable, um, you know. Uh, again, like like not really design, not tr standard design work, you know. But from my point of view, is like, well, if you want to ship this concept of playing as anyone in this open world, well, this is this is part of part of making sure that that system ships. Right. Um, it's just not player facing at all. So it's all internal like development concerns and stuff like that. Okay. Um, <laughs> trying to think through what's like. Like not like that was definitely like like there's two there's two projects that kind of bookend my career so far, which is Scribblenauts right. and Watchdogs Legion. Extremely different, but actually very similar in terms of like oh it's just like a lot of organizational work and also like big ideas that's like yeah no one's done it but it's totally possible you just gotta do it yeah right yeah i was gonna make that comparison at some point though like it seems like this is another one of those like oh this sounds like a somewhat impossible problem mm -hmm. but if you just keep working at it maybe yeah you can do it yeah um okay well what were, what were some of the biggest biggest problems that you figured you figured out how to solve Oh, I don't want to pretend I knew how to solve Well, them. that you, you came up with some, <laughs> they, the, what were some of the biggest problems? Let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, um, a big, a big problem was like, oh gosh, I, I gave a, I gave a talk on, on Watch Dogs Legion. I don't really want to like reiterate everything from it, but like a big thing was, um, on the design side was like creating coherent characters. Yeah. Right. So, so in in the game, you could profile a character, and when I when we talk about coherent, we're like internally consistent. This character is not 
this character's data doesn't conflict with itself. It does it's not false and it's not falsifiable, right? And by mean? falsifiable exactly. I mean like a uh a person uh who uh is begging on the street and it says that and then you profile them and it's like oh they're a lawyer at the local like that's right. that's kind of like uh, that's incongruent but it's also like if we say this person is a lawyer then we shouldn't immediately have we should not have evidence that they're not a lawyer you know that's right. what i mean by falsifiable right if they're doing something that is like like two facts two facts conflict right mm -hmm. and some of these facts are systemic facts right like this is data associated with character generation. It's like what kind of, and some of it's subjective in the same way that Scribblenauts was subjective. Like what's your fashion style? You know, um, do you wear suits? Do you wear casual clothes? Are you like always in athletic clothes? Does that conflict with like who you are or what you work as? Or like, and then it gets into like this sort of philosophical of like what makes a person and who are people? Who are we and, anyway? Like, yeah. People are unique and different and are conflicting and actually, you know, we're not all inherently consistent with each other. Sure. So where do you draw the line with a video game where people are interpreting these characters and like, is this like you it, see a lawyer begging on the street you could actually have like a oh yeah. well i guess yeah. he got disbarred or something right like yeah, you can yeah. sort of make up some up story with, about you how could that come happened. up with a story of that but uh if later he goes out to dinner with right. his client <laughs> that yeah. he is helping it's like oh no that also doesn't work right so, and it's like if it happens once from a player's perspective will players think it's a bug or mm -hmm. not and how do you balance like is it a bug or is it just this person's unique? Right. Um, there's a lot of subjectivity in evaluating that sort of stuff. So uh, let's let me ask some basic questions yeah, about yeah. the about the game. Um, you know, the the world has a bunch of characters. I don't know, a hundred, a thousand, I don't know what, <laughs> right? And um, um, <laughs> a hundred, a thousand. Uh, which That's one? Funny. <laughs> That's funny. That's <laughs> funny. What, what what is it? I mean, it, they're all procedurally generated, right. so it's infinite, right? Okay, well, that's sort of what I'm getting at. Like, yeah. I could imagine that you could design this game where if instead of creating them you know, yeah. over and over again, you're like, we're just going to make this roster yeah. 500, yeah. and we're going to sort of do it procedurally, but then we'll hand-tune it, mm. and you don't need more than 500 characters. Like, that yeah. should be fine, right? <laughs> well, like, and you see repeat. A player sees repeats, and it, it all destroys. It's all destroyed when you see well, a repeat. Well, isn't a repeat just the same character? Like, it's not a repeat, per se. Are you saying, like, if someone kills too many characters, then they'll be, there won't be enough characters so, left on the, in the pool? No, not, so, like, if you were to do, off, like, there is a version of this that is, like, there's a version that might exist in, in our minds, right, of, like, an authored version of this, right? Like, my pitch for that kind of authored thing would be, like, a Twin Peaks style, like, small town everyone's authored, yep. full systems, you kill someone, they're gone. Yep. You're not generating new people to you fill in the space. You might get an empty town if you're yeah, a real you make psychopath. It an empty town. Yeah. yeah, a little bit of like the Skyrim thing, I guess, although they have procedurally generated characters too. Um, yeah, with a, with a, with a, if you need a constantly refilling cast, okay. um, then uh, having a small roster, even having a big roster that is a roster, right? players notice repeats and it breaks their sense of belief in this like city sort of ecosystem. We ran okay. into this problem with like fashion when clothes repeated, 
right? Um, uh, even if the rest of the character was different, like if the clothes, you saw the same outfits, you know? Like so people every, are just very good at like recognizing, people are good at recognizing patterns. Sure. You know? Okay. Um, um, and you just needed an endless stream of of new characters, mm. most of which appear and then just disappear and the player doesn't, doesn't yeah, matter yeah. because they don't interact with them. Yeah. Okay. But it's sort of like um, every character you ran across was kind of like an offer, right? Okay. Um, you know, here's a character that you could recruit and become part of your group. So every single character had to have something to offer players to some extent. But also we tried not to anticipate... Um, I mean, we did a little bit because you have to do some sort of like uh, intentional design, but like trying not to anticipate too much about what a player might think is interesting. Like I might want to recruit someone because their name is Elizabeth England. Like I'm, if I find someone with my name, I am recruiting them mm -hmm. and there's nothing in our data that can anticipate this character is going to be interesting to players because that's just like a sub completely subjective thing. This person looks like my aunt, so I'm gonna recruit her, right? right. Like you can't anticipate that. Um, so you need systems that will still support that kind of play while also seeding people with, you know, seeding, seeding players with like opportunities and offers of like, this might, this might be an interesting person because they're doing something interesting. Um, they're doing something that draws attention to them. They're a character that you might meet in a mission, you know, um, it's sort of like, these opportunities are presenting, we're presenting opportunities to players to find characters that they might want to recruit. Right. Um, but you couldn't anticipate that it would be those and it wouldn't be just like a random person on the street right. that you ran over with a car and you felt bad. So, okay. you, you know. So the game's constantly training out new characters. Yeah. Once you yeah. recruit them or you have some sort of interaction with mm. them, then essentially they, be, they become like permanent characters. Yeah, too. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and like we had we had some systems to say like, you you express some kind of interest, like some sort of intentional interest, and maybe it was just like you profiled a person. Mm. Maybe it's like you uh, you've met their mom, and mm. their mom is on your team, so therefore they're a more permanent character. Right. And so like we always had this roster of characters that were kind of permanent, and just like if you never interact with them, they're just kind of like as we fill that up, we just like drop people off at the end, right? So there's actually like a pretty big long list of like permanent characters that are kind of simulated in the world and it's just like oh you haven't interacted with this person in a really long time we need another spot we just you know roll roll them out kind of thing um uh yeah okay yeah. and this, this is still sounding like a stupid question but like what's the advantage of doing this like <laughs> being able to pick anyone because i could imagine you know i can yeah. imagine being in a situation like hey we, we created these 20 characters yeah. and it's a pretty good variety yeah. Choose two, like, yeah. hey, that's you know, that's kind of like most yeah, of what yeah, you're doing here. Yeah. I anyway. mean, like, I absolutely have this conversation a lot of times at work. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, so okay, so so I, I'm probably not gonna answer that very satisfactorily, right? Like, like to some extent. So like unanswer the un the super unsatisfying answer is that like when I work on a project like that it's not it's not my job to say why this is sure. like the most important system it's like no my my job is to like Just make the system work and, make it work and right. I'm glad to actually not have to worry about some of those other higher level things um, it's kind of like the unsatisfying answer like that that was like my job was to get procedurally generated characters sure. working and running but but. So the, the, the other side of it, which has less to do with like the, the development of the game and more like 
philosophy that I have regarding procedural generation um, is that, um, so we talked about like systems that, that, that allow for like I stories, like I did this and mm-hmm. then this happened and then I did this and ways you interact with the system. Um, procedurally generated content is very similar in that what you're doing is you're presenting players with sort of like a partial story and you're allowing players to fill in the blanks, right? Mm-hmm. And so procedurally generated characters in a game like Watch Dogs Legion, but also in like procedurally generated content in a lot of games are actually like, we've generated a thing, but maybe we haven't said why this thing exists here, but a player who comes by is going to start creating connections that Mm -hmm. didn't exist before, and they're gonna fill in the blanks. And so it's an opportunity to give a player like seeds of a story or like, like a way to like prompt their imagination and then they can start drawing connections and they will do logical leaps and they'll come up with stories that we did not author. In the same way that interesting systems can collide to create stories that we did not author, if that kind of makes sense. I don't right. know if that, I don't know if that like that like line of logic makes sense to a lot of people. It's kind of like the way in which I think about procedural generation a lot as like a a creativity tool for players. Right. Um, I guess I'm kind of curious to see what, you know, you, there's a lot, you know, you're on the project for a yeah. long time. Like, what did you discover on the way where you're like, as the things started to come together, you know, you're seeing like, oh, okay, now this means X and this means Y. Yeah, yeah. Things I haven't seen in games before, right? Yeah, yes. Um, I mean, like, on Legion, what I described came up a lot. It came up internally, but like, I think one of the problems is that like, does that hit a mass market in the way that you want? And when I say what I describe coming up internally is like, there were times I sit down with like a couple of the narrative designers and we go through and we play the game and playing the game was actually just profiling people and being like, oh, this person exists. Here's their profile. Oh, I like them. And then you see like the facts on their profile, their background, their schedule. And it's like, oh, this is this kind of person. And you can immediately start coming up with stories that came out of that character that was just procedurally generated from a bunch of like bits and pieces of data that were like, kind of like pulled and stretched together in a way that created coherent character. But you could create like, when I say you could create, you could like, like playing the game, you could imagine a lot of interesting stories that are like, it's not about, how do I phrase it? It's not about imagining interesting stories. It's like, we gave, we gave players something that you could then take and be like, I now have I have a fully fledged mental like picture of who this character is Mm -hmm. Um, and I can make like I can have opinions about that. I can say this is the type of person that would do X, Y and Z. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know that it was like fully realized in the actual game. Right. And like the, the play that a lot of people had did not actually mirror a lot of this, but some people did, right? Like some people were able to engage in the systems in a way that they realize that's like, okay, I'm being offered these interesting characters and I can do something with it. And that thing I can do with it is tell a story with these characters. Right. Can you think of some like ideal examples of this that you, you kind of saw as the you know game was coming out or, um, I'm trying to try to think of a good example. Um, uh, cause I watched a lot of streamers play and a lot of them had a lot of fun. Um, uh, I mean, we had some good ones internally. It's been a while now. Um, sure. uh, I think we should like two years ago. Um, there were some good ones that we came across internally, right? Where it was just like, 
everything about this person we loved. Um, I remember, I remember us going through and profiling a bunch of characters because we just wanted some screenshots of mm. like examples. And uh, someone came across a paramedic. Right. Um, they were responding to like some kind of accident or whatever. They were in their whole paramedic outfit and he profiled them and said they were paramedic. Um, and uh, they uh, you go into the details about the person and it was something like I'm trying to remember examples of this, but it was like, you know, they failed medical school. Mm-hmm. They bought their diploma online. Right. Uh, they have a warrant out for their arrest. <laughs> They recently Googled flesh-eating disease symptoms, <laughs> and it's like, who is this, this person, person that is now a paramedic, right? right and it's right, like, right. it's sort of like, yeah, we hand-authored a bunch of things, but we didn't know who they're going to attach to and when. And they all kind of, like, attach to this paramedic that's like, this guy is the world's worst paramedic. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously everyone he treats is going to die, right? Because right. bought, he bought his diploma online and stuff <laughs> like that. He's wanted by the police. Um, and, like... Like, it's hard to go from that, and, and even when you asked me for an ideal version, I don't think that's an ideal version, right? Because that's like a snapshot that's kind of like, that's good, that's funny, that's a joke, but does it have legs long-term into the system? Right. And I think that was like one of the difficulties is like, we built a lot of simulation aspects, but it was not very readable to players, and it also wasn't very useful to players. So we de-emphasized their importance, and then it's like, do we give do we give a chance to make these characters feel like they have full lives? I I don't know, right? But like like if you take what I described and then you start tying it to simulation aspects, like if you were to follow a paramedic around or like look at their look at their like schedule, it's like here's where they live, here's where they work, here's who they hang out with, who their friends are, mm-hmm. what their hobbies are, and you get a bigger picture. But it was hard to like I think one of the things I learned from working on like a big complex system is uh, it, it, it doesn't matter how actually complex your system is if players aren't seeing it, right? Yes. If, if the, if the, and like, I mean, that's like an obvious that, statement, right? But it, it's like, an important statement. That's a theme that comes up yeah. in a lot of, of I think, I, I know it's, it, Popping Hippies is Clint, but Clint has some sort of story about this with Far Cry 2, which mm-hmm. I can't remember off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. But he, like, he had some system about relationships and what the characters yeah. thought about each other. And yeah. it just wasn't coming across because there yeah. was no... It wasn't, yeah. You know, it wasn't surface to the player, and if it's not surface to the player, yeah. it might, people just read it as noise. Yeah, right? yeah. This came up with like scribble knots, obviously, right? We talked about cause and effect. It's hard to read cause and effect because you read based off of proximity of like what you did last or what is next to each other, right? Um, the same problems appear in like a big open world with a whole bunch of systems and simulations, like. Why did this happen? I don't know, but the yeah. last thing that happened was a car crash. So clearly, it's related to that. Well, it wasn't. It's because of these other complex parts of the AI. Yeah. The way the way I've been phrased, way I've phrased it to other people, have been like, it doesn't matter if you've encoded a whole Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If the only thing AI do are, you know, uh, fight, flee, right. or cower. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. 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 Um, Sid has kind of a pithy phrase for this where he says, like, the, you know, it's important that the, the, person ha- the, the, the person having fun should be the player, not the computer. Yes. Right? Yeah. In the yeah. sense that, like, yeah. it, it's, it's hard as a designer not to get in that trap mm-hmm. where you're like, oh, I'm making all this stuff. Like, is this like, fun I'm, for a designer I'm, or is yeah. this fun for a player? Like, yeah. you're the one maybe playing the game, right? You're like, yeah. look at all, and they're all these characters yeah. are going to bounce off each other in yeah. these really interesting ways. Yeah. And 
Um, yeah, like if you don't find a hook, like so, for example, in the, the thing you said, so if he bought his diploma online, does that yeah. mean he's incompetent, like in the game itself? No, or that's no, just a no, that's flavor text. Okay, right. And there's some advantage to using flavor text because Shh. then, like, you can you can jump and make your own like associations and stories sure. about them. Um, but there's nothing that has anything to do with like their level of quality of medical attention yeah. um you know in the game like that doesn't doesn't modify anything so yeah. um like there's a like are they narrative offers or are they like gameplay modifiers and we mixed mix them up so that we could like try to represent like a whole person kind of thing um but yeah like i think i think one of the things like i hate to talk about like here's the problems with the game i ship because like I wasn't. I was one person on it. It was a whole team, and a yeah. lot of people were very good at their work, right? Um, I think one of the things that we didn't quite succeed at was we created really interesting, robust systems, but not very interesting, robust ways for players to interact with those systems. Um, right. You know, it's funny. This this calls back the thing we talked about two hours ago <laughs> <laughs> oh about the time loop game. Right. Mm -hmm. Of like, you know, you make an event, you probably see where I'm already going, right? Like yeah. you make an adventure game and it's got, got the time loop getting the right place at the right time, but you haven't figured out how to actually frame the game. Yes. Right. You know, you guys are like, oh, yeah. we got this really interesting simulation. Yeah. We're resing up people whenever yeah. they want, but okay, fine. Yeah. How should that game actually be played? Yes. Like what's the player's yes. like access yes. point into that yeah. game? So, so they actually can take get some value out of this yeah. simulation. Yeah. That's one of the things that I've thought a lot about when I left when I left Ubisoft and I was thinking about next steps, right? Um because I left I left Ubisoft and I took a bit of a break, you know, I just wanted to work on side projects. I wanted to explore my own thing. I did some consulting work, just like want to figure out what I wanted. And one of the kind of like uh I guess rules or guidelines I put down for myself was like, all right, Liz, let's I love working on interesting systems that are challenging and impossible, right? Like the procedurally generated characters in Watch Life Illusion was just like, oh, I loved working on it, right? Like that was that was a great design challenge, right? Scribble Nuts was a great design challenge. Um, but what I wanted to do, but like I don't really play open world AAA games. I don't really even play like like other Ubisoft games. So it's like I could design that system, but was I perhaps the right person to be designing that game? Mm -hmm. Right. So so when I looked at next steps, I was like, I do want to design big, complex, difficult, challenging systems within a game that I also feel like I am the right person to be a designer on this game. Like I am I am behind this game top to bottom and like the systems in the game, not just my systems, but all of them are ones that like I can engage with. Cause like, I think one of the things that I failed at, uh, at when I was at Ubisoft was that I could design systems and like, I talked a lot about communication, but there is also some siloing, right? Like the need to sit down and focus and make sure the procedurally generated systems were working right? And not get bogged down constantly in what all the other areas of design on the project were because the project was so big. Right. But that meant that the connections between the work that I was doing and the work the other designers were working were weak, right? The right. systemic connections between my system and all the other systems were weak because to some extent, like work I did siloed it because some of its scope, some of it's just like, like the natural aspect of it. But I think part of it too was just like, well, I don't, 
I don't know much about combat design, so I'm sure the combat designers will figure all that stuff out. Right. I'm going to go work on the procedurally generated characters. Do their, but then the connection doesn't yeah. get made. They're going to do their thing, but then it doesn't interact with yes. the procedural generation, so yes. what's yeah. the point, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah. And, like, if we had done it differently... It's, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you could do it differently. I don't know if it would have made it better because it's just a really hard problem to solve regardless, mm -hmm. right? So one thing I've been looking at has been like, let me make sure I work on a project that like I understand and I believe in all the systems and like I can look at all the systems as a designer and I'm behind all of them and I don't have a situation of like, oh, you're all doing this system that like I could take or leave in any game or like I'm working in a like... Like, I don't want to work in a genre that I don't love, right? Right. Even though in the past, I could easily do that because I could work on a system within that genre and, like, work hard on that system. But I feel like the next step is, like, making sure that my systems are well integrated with everything else in the game. Right. Um, well, yeah. you're doing something... The thing you're working on was extremely challenging and should have probably been the core of the game, right? Or, I mean, maybe, I don't know. But I like, mean, maybe, but like, yeah. Like, if you're going to go to that effort... Yeah. That's, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. If you're going to yeah. the effort to do that, it needed to be more central to whatever the yeah. player was, was, was actually doing. But it was difficult doing. for people to grasp the, their head around it, and also we hadn't grasped our head fully around it for right. a really long time. You know, like, it took us a really long time to realize what that recruitment loop looked like mm -hmm. and what we should have done in order to make it good. And we tried as best we could to, like shift into better versions of it but like like this is like it's interesting right like i think a system like that like the first game that comes out with a system like that is going to be real rough right? right and it's like well then now you take all the lessons you learned and apply it to a new game and uh it's like the the situation of like the rough first game and yeah. like the polished sequel kind yeah. of thing um like i feel like that's where that's where you could have taken a bunch of stuff that we learned and applied it and done like, like, oh, now we understand what this system we made was. Like we kind of, like we didn't, I don't think we fully understand what the system was until we got like, like 90% through and then you have the other 90% to do, right? Like, <laughs> like systems yeah. are so hard to understand early on because they require so many moving parts in order to like, feel it in motion yeah you know? it's it's a tough challenge even if you made the you know the traits that get generated for these characters mm -hmm. more meaningful for like the, the thing that mm -hmm. you're using them for and you know maybe you're going through that more often you'd still need some constraints that i'm not sure what they yeah. would get because otherwise it's like well i need a character who's good at x i'm just going to keep looking until i find a yeah. character who's good at x yeah. and then i the character does x right like yes. it seems yeah. you need some create constraint of okay okay you're limited to and this is like sort of cross purposes with the whole endeavor. Is mm -hmm. like, okay, you're limited to these four options. And yeah, there is the character who's good at X, say lock picking, but yeah. they're also bad at Y. Yeah. So you might need to, you might be better use this yeah. other character who's like yeah. not a good lock picker, but he's not gonna he's not gonna yeah. smoke in the place yeah. with a fire alarm. Yeah, you know? yeah. And like like I think if you had a game that had a lot more wide variety of verbs, right? And like that's a game where a lot of the verbs were like I hack, I shoot, I punch, I drive, yeah. right? Okay. And it's like, yeah. well, how do you make a random person walking down the street useful inside of those verbs that are actually pretty specialized and very like yeah. player fantasy empowerment specialized, right? Like those are there's well, like Well, Ubisoft makes games that fit into a third person yeah. hole. Yeah. Right? And so 
it, it's hard. Like maybe this is something that yeah. would be more appropriate for, yeah. you know, a top-down strategy game or yeah, something, right? Yeah, yeah. You know? But like, uh, <laughs> I mean, like this is like this would be the joke version of it. It's like, yeah, but they were willing to fund like Watch Dogs Three and have this system. So that's how that system, like that's yeah, yeah, that, that's exactly. where you get that. If system. you're and of all the Ubisoft, if you're products, at Ubisoft, that's what you do. And yeah. of all the Ubisoft products, that would be the best IP to tie the system into. Oh sure, for right? sure, right? Um, and uh, I think there's just like a lot of things we didn't know going into it that. Uh, that would have made it, I don't know, like a lot of things, it's like the design could have gone so differently in so many different ways. How do you map out all the different kind of branches of the what-if version of a game uh, if you did different things different ways or you you learn some of those lessons earlier? And also, like, how could you learn, like, and I don't have good answers for this. I, was, I think about it a lot, right? It's like, how do you learn some of those lessons earlier on the process? Oh, yeah. That's, right? that's the problem with, with, with game development, right? Yeah. Like, and, you know, oftentimes it does come down to you're like, well, we just need to do good enough that we can do another version. Yeah. And what, not just in terms of like that it, it sells well enough, but also that the developers behind it have the uh, excitement to do yeah. it again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And take their knowledge yeah. and take it someplace. Because right? that worked that worked with Scribblenauts and mm -hmm. going into Super Scribblenauts, which I think is a better game. Right. Because we knew what we were making. We changed the kinds of puzzles we were making. Our systems were more robust. We polished a bunch of stuff. And we 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 kind of understood a lot more about what the game was when we made the sequel. Um, and then I was done with the series, right? Yeah. I was like, oh, no, yeah. peace out. I mean, developer thing, enthusiasm yeah. is a real resource, yeah. right? Like, yeah. it's a reality, yeah. right? Like, um, you know, I ran out of enthusiasm for 4X games yeah. when I got to the end of Civ 4, you know? And yeah. I, my tank filled up yeah. over the next 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and I was able to do it again. Yeah. But, like... You know, you can't just keep yeah. working away at it. So sometimes it's, it's, it's institutional knowledge. So yeah. I guess we'll see what Ubisoft does. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, okay, well, you said, like, now you want to yeah. you want to be making a game where you're excited about all parts of it. Yeah. So it can be more cohesive. Yeah. What what type of game would you want to make? Like I can't I answer that. I know you no, can't answer you that. Know that. But, well, yeah. you, can't, you can't even tie... Well, so, yeah, so, so I left... So I, mean, I left Ubisoft. I took about, like, six months off. I did my own thing. Yeah. I did... I, I didn't make anything that I can show other people because I just did my own thing and it was like play around with Unity assets and yeah, like sure. AI stuff and like lots of little fun. It was great. I highly recommend six months of no work if you can afford it, which most people can't. <laughs> sure. um, but yeah, and then I and then then I after that and and now right, I work at Possibility Space and like my title is. Uh, narrative systems and simulation director. Okay. I don't think anyone else in the industry has that title. That's a it's long a very title. bespoke. But it's like me in a nutshell. <laughs> right. right. It's like if I could like craft a perfect title, it would be that, right? Which says a lot and nothing at the same right. time. Say, say right? that again. Narrative systems and simulation director. Okay. Yeah. Why is there an and simulation instead of just narrative systems designer? Or are you also designing the simulation? Yeah, it's all that stuff. But the narrative... Narrative <laughs> systems and it simulation. A, it's not a narrative simulation. These are two different no, it's, things. Sorry, it's, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm pulling They're out both two different things and the same thing at the yeah, same yeah, yeah, time. Yeah. Because, okay. because philosophically, um, I gave them the spiel be just before they, they they were like, ah, how about this title? Right. Um, so that, that influenced the... But like, my spiel is like I gave earlier, which is like, there's for me, there's no difference between design and narrative, they mm -hmm. are the same thing. And I am most interested in 
game systems that create interesting narrative moments um, and the way those systems can create situations for players to experience, manipulate, you know, um, interact with, like, and, and just those I stories, right? Like, I did this, right? Not, not the game. T- the game didn't tell me a story. I told a story using the game, right, right. as my platform. Like, I, I find, like, like, Crusader Kings or Dwarf Fortress or, like, or The Sims. Actually, The Sims is probably, like, when people ask me, like, what's an example of a game where the game systems and the narrative systems are the same, I'm like, The Sims yeah. is a... The Sims is a storytelling game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a lot of things yep. that you're doing with The yep. Sims. What you're doing is you're telling a story. Yeah, I was going to ask earlier if you, know? you were into The Sims. Oh, because yeah. Because it seems like that would yeah. be something to be right yeah. Yeah. in line with um, what you're doing. Yeah, I go through I go through cycles of of playing The Sims a ton and then like putting it aside and playing all the other simulation games in my right. in my backlog. Um, yeah, I like and, and I like I think The Sims might be one of the games that helps teach me what I like when I talk about narrative and uh-huh. systems. Because when I talk about The Sims and I talk about like, oh, here's how I play The Sims, I tell a story, right, right of something that I did and that other people understand because they know the systems that The Sims allows, but they have never told that story yeah. um, before, you know, um, and, and that's how like uh, that. That's one of the reasons I like The Sims so much is like it tells stories of like people in a family in a home together and dynamics that happen within the home. Right. Um, yeah. Now there's something inter- important to be discussed when you talk about, you know, making a game that's kind of like simulation with narrative and characters yeah. like the Sims in that the framework matters a lot. You know, like we talked about mm-hmm. like the different, you know, Roberta Williams time travel game versus the outer wilds, yeah. right. And how they figured out the right yeah. framework. Right. Yeah. And, um, I think you can especially see this in Crusader Kings, right? Mm-hmm. It's a game that's kind of bedeviled me for like a decade. It because, still bedevils me. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting. It's probably not a game for me, but I but at the same time, like I've been very interested in its success yeah. and how much players love it yes. and the things that it does well. And I, you know, I've learned where my limits are in terms of like, okay, this is the space that I can design in and yeah. I'm good to design in because yeah. I can be inspired by some things that Crusader Kings does, There's, but I can't make a game like Crusader no, Kings because I can't, uh, because well, it's, it's for, for the problem for me is yeah. that, you know, it's, it's open-ended. There's no real mm-hmm. victory condition. Oh, There's no yeah. real laws. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about yeah. with framework, right? Like, yeah. like if I started doing one of these type of games, I would keep trying to bend it back to like, well, what's oh, the no. point? Yeah, right? and, no, and, and I'd like, be like, victory conditions, yes. no, throw that in the it, garbage. Exactly, and you would you would ruin <laughs> yes. you would ruin a game like that yeah. by having victory conditions. Yes. And it takes a certain yes. type of designer, which yeah. it seems yeah. like you mean, are. Yeah, meanwhile, like, there's no world in which I will ever design a, design a good board game. Right. Because I'm not going to be good at designing something for victory conditions. Right. Right? Like, that's not my, that's when I talk about, like, I don't, I'm not good at balancing, right? It's like... If I were to make a multiplayer game, the last thing I would want to work on is an eSport. Yes, sure. The first thing I'd want to work on is like a build survive game, yep. right? Because yep. it's like, well, when are you done? Well, when you feel like it's done. What, what did you want to do? Did you want to make like a giant tower as big as you can make it? Well, here's a bunch of systems that allow you to do those self-driven goals, yep. right? Yep. Um, and uh, I like like... Slowly over time, like I mentioned this a bit with ProcGen as like a a way for players to like 
like improvise new stories by like seeing what the game offers and fill in the blanks and the ways in which like interesting systems can collide to like allow players like like to come up with like it's like they have a what if and that what if is very story oriented regarding like how they're going to intersect with these these systems um and uh so so I look at games that don't have endpoints and have self-driven goals, right. right? And are very good at allowing for self-driven goals. Um, Cause like, like I like, I like, um, like as a player, I like looking at the margins of systems. I like looking at like, well, the game intends me to do this. Well, what does it really allow me at the very edge, right? right. Like what are, what are the weird things that I can do with this game? And I get the most joy in a lot of simulation games that are very sandboxy and are very toy-like, that give just enough structured goals. Um, like one of the games that I, I've, I've forbidden myself to play because I'll just keep playing it forever and never play anything else is Satisfactory. Okay, right? sure, yeah. And it's like, like the ability to like in 3D, like draw my conveyor belts <laughs> and or, I like organizing yeah. and meaning and organizing things, right? Like, sure, there's very specific goals, but like to break down those goals, yeah. you know, I'm just getting back into like I can break down my yeah. goals. No, it's okay. It's, it's interesting because like I, I, I haven't played Satisfactory, but I have played Factorio. Yeah. And um, yeah. Uh, I found it really interesting because I, I had it in my backlog for a long time. Like, mm -hmm. oh, I'll get into this game. It's definitely because yeah. it's a strategy game, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, I started playing it and I was like, you know, like I kind of like yeah. had the initial resistance of like, how's all this stuff work? Yeah. And then once I just figured out how it worked, then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Now everything is just X plus one, right? Like, mm -hmm. like I can do everything it's just going to take a lot more so arrangement and design bounced, and push out yeah so i bounced off of factorio uh -huh. and i got super into satisfactory okay and part of it was level of expressiveness right is different and that keeps me involved in something like satisfactory where i have a 3d environment i have conveyor belts on splines that i can put i can stack yeah. i can turn it into spaghetti and it like i can create vistas of like my pollution my pollution factory vistas and like weird geometrical like shapes of factories and like there's a certain level of like um, like I like dollhouse games, mm -hmm. like Sims is a dollhouse yeah. game. Build survive games are dollhouse like to me. Like I am, yes, I'm creating a little cabin so we survive, but also I'm decorating the cabin and I'm painting it and I want to do like weird stuff with like the geometry here and satisfactory lets me do that. But when I played Factorio, it felt too much like, oh no, I'm just building a factory. Satisfactory, I'm building factories, but I'm also building like really silly factories that right. like, yeah, yeah. and like how 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 much can i like just spin this yeah. and like yeah and we're but we're we're discussing yeah. is like design aesthetics right yes. you know and like yeah. you know i think you know you you've you've been through a, a journey on your career yeah. and like it, you know hopefully you can see that like you need to be able to make an open ended game yeah. right yeah 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 um those are the ones that i enjoy the most playing they're the ones that uh i feel like like have like, like I'm interested in games that allow for endless play, mm -hmm. um, which requires good, robust systems and the ability to allow for self, self-driven player goals. Yeah. Right. Um, if like match-like games, games that have an end to the match, like I play some of them, like I play yeah. a ridiculous amount of Overwatch, for example, but like. I'm the last person that should ever design a right, game like right. that. You know? it, it, it used to be there weren't a lot of 
there weren't a lot of examples of successful yeah. games like that. And now yeah. it's just like, yeah. actually, it feels like there's more examples yeah. than of like the, the more traditional games. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was like, you know, The Sims was really popular and people were like, yeah. oh, that's kind of weird. And then Minecraft's yeah. really popular and people were like, oh, that's kind of weird. Yeah. And then at some point it's just like, well, that's not weird. That's just. That's, that's a new kind of like, it's a new kind of MMO, right? Like I think of like, like I love build survive games. Those those have got me through a lot of the pandemic mm -hmm. with friends. You know, we talk with friends and build a little house, um, and you know, collect dinosaurs and breed them. And I played so much Ark, um, yeah. uh, and like playing those. I'm like, this is this is what I wanted out of MMOs, but I didn't have the language to describe it. And I think a lot of people didn't have the language to describe it. And it's like. I can play with friends in an open world that we have a lot of power to manipulate, to change, and to create within. Minecraft does the same thing, right? Like yeah. Minecraft is like, um, I don't want to say it's like the first version of this. Real, obviously the really popular version of this that like uh, a lot of other games probably uh, directly or indirectly got inspiration from. But like, like, we're presented with a world with an ecosystem and a bunch of systems. And it's like, all right, well, I want to do something and I can come up with a plan with the knowledge I have with this world. I can yeah. also just go explore content in this world and I don't know what I'll find because of like Minecraft procedural generation yeah, yeah. or because we haven't explored this map before. Yeah, like, I, I've heard, I remember saw someone talking recently about how it's, they're sad that like, WoW is now essentially recycling itself, you know? That yeah. Like, and, you know, it's like, I, mean, I hadn't really, I don't really pay too much attention to MMOs. They're obviously kind of very calcified. And now that mm -hmm. I think about it, like, the, the, the obvious reason is people play, I mean, these games like Ark and, yeah. and Valheim, whatever, they're, they're, they're just light MMOs. Yeah. Right. They are. And they're, they're delivering the thing that people really wanted to begin with, which no one, people couldn't set up back when MMOs started. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. maybe the technology wasn't there. Maybe the understanding wasn't there. Mm -hmm. But like, you know, the the top down MMO is probably not coming back because you don't need it. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. It's hard for me to think of like a good modern MMO because I don't play them anymore. Like an MMORPG. I'm just like that doesn't have anything for me because it's mostly about consuming content in terms of quests and leveling up and progression in that way or doing big multiplayer raids, right? Yeah. And I don't want to play with anyone other than my handful yeah. of friends who will deal with our idiosyncrasies yep. and my control needs, yep. <laughs> right? Yep. Um, I don't want to play with a whole bunch of strangers. I want to play with my friends, right? Yep. So, like, like it's interesting because I think Ark... Ark was an example of a game that started out very MMO-like, mm -hmm. and you can still obviously play on a server with a whole bunch of strangers, but we just spun up our own dedicated yep. server that's just our own, right? Yep. And that was what we needed, yep. right? Um, play the game our way, however we wanted, um, explore it at our own pace without the like tension of other players being on the map with us, yep. right? And if we yep. want that tension, we play CFDs. Right. <laughs> yep. Yeah. 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 Cool. All right. Um, well, I think we get to the point now where I like to ask, you know, we've kind of talked through your mm -hmm. whole career so far. Why have you, you know, why have you dedicated your career to making games? Why is this what you do? Um, I'm not confident in anything else uh, <laughs> is, is one way of framing it. Um, so, so I think there's a few different things I could have done with my life. Right. But I think 
I think I really enjoy creating stuff for other people to use, if that makes sense, right? Mm. Like, I think if I wasn't making games, I might be making tools. If I wasn't making tools, I might be making some other kind of art, right? Um, I like making stuff for other people. Um, and games just allows me to kind of like explore a whole bunch of interesting, like, like you're not just creating for something for someone to experience. You're creating something that then other people can create with it. I don't know if that, that, that makes a lot of sense. I didn't just like describing tools, right? <laughs> uh, but tools that are fun. Right. right? Sure. Like, that made and, people want to keep using them. Yeah. 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 And it's just like. So much of my like early childhood and my life is so steeped in like sort of like the joy of playing games, right? And I think that like I think that there's so much more we can do with games that we're not doing yet. Like so many interesting experiences that can be had through games. And I find that all those challenges like lean on like all the parts of your brain, right? Like just like like I could go into a spiel about like, I think games will change the world, but I think that would be a lie coming from me, right? Like I think, it's not that I don't think games are really important, it's just like when I think about my relationship with games, the problems and challenges of making games are really hard, they're technical, they're artistic, they lean on knowledge in so many different areas. And every time I work on a new game, it's like, oh cool, I have a new research project. I'm going to learn so much about something else that I never had a reason to learn, but now I'm going to do deep dives on and I'm going to become like a little bit of an expert in this new thing. Mm -hmm. And then on the next game, I'm going to become a little bit of an expert in a brand new thing. And I value novelty really highly um, in terms of like the games that I play, in terms of the games that I want to make, in terms of like the career choices, like the stuff that I want to work on. But like, when I make games, I also am really interested in making games that create interesting novel things for players to experience as well, right? Um, so, like, like, I can't imagine another medium that lets me do all those things at once um, that also is just fun, right? Like, I think, I think if I was making, like, tools, for example, right, mm -hmm. which I think has a lot of similarity, right? It's like, okay... What kinds of tools and for who? And I like making tools to make games is so much would be so much more interesting than making mm -hmm. tools for like like I don't know Photoshop, right? right? Yeah. You know, like the the sort of stuff that people that people like do when they're like. Well, a lot of the stuff you invest in making a game, it gets paid. The enthusiasm gets paid back because yeah. then the, the players do something unexpected with it, yes. you know, and that yeah. you know pushes you further. Right? Yeah, yeah, and I like um, I like knowing that people like like the experiences are meaningful to people mm -hmm. and not just functional, right? Because right. I could think a lot of tools work is functional tools work, which is like it's 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 important, right? But like playing a game and having a meaningful experience out of it. And meaningful might just mean, oh, that was really fun, yeah. right? Um, it might also mean, like, I like I played, I'm trying to think, like, uh, meaningful might mean someone who played, like, uh, Super Mario Maker, and they made a really cool yeah, level, yeah. and that's meaningful, because I think about, like, or you we know, talked about Heroes of Might and Magic, and that was a really meaningful game to me that got a lot of joy just using the map editor. Sure, yeah. Um, or you connected people who've been separated for two years due yeah, to the pandemic. Yes. You know? Yeah, 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 right. yeah, absolutely. Like, 
Yeah. 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 And, and, and that ties in a little bit into like, for years I had no interest in anything multiplayer and like, especially with the pandemic that changed my mind a lot. Like Mm -hmm. I'm now super interested in what cooperative or free form multiplayer looks like. And I think that's true across the industry, right? Because it's like, we all sort of like identify the desire to be able to play with our friends and different ways to play with our friends and different like forms of like forms of play, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's always hard to answer. I was like, well, why games? I'm like, because they're the most interesting. <laughs> like, I just find them so interesting and I'm like never bored. Yeah. And like, I'm always afraid on a project. It's like, I will leave a company as soon as I start getting bored, mm-hmm. right? Because I I want interesting challenges. It's just like I don't find anything about games boring, um, yep. you know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank you. This was great. Mm-hmm.